All right. Well, I'm doing something a little bit different today. Um, this is a video that is sort of 20 years in the making. Um, so let me give you a little bit of background. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I saw that a friend of mine who is a pastor in San Diego, a guy that I've known for 20 years, uh, was was doing a series at his church uh, called Is Christianity Credible or, or Credible Christianity? So it was credible and Christianity were in there and there was alliteration. Anyway, um, I tuned in. They were streaming the sermons on, on Facebook. And one of them was um, by a, a former mentor of mine, uh, a guy who had uh, discipled me when I was a sort of young uh, teenager and uh, and a Christian. And watching his sermon um, was was extremely frustrating as a non-believer and as a person who had spent uh, at that point six, seven years learning about science and learning about um, philosophy a little bit. And it, it got the wheels turning in my head. It, it was uh, the catalyst that I, I think led to me being involved in activism today. Um, so what I'm going to be doing today is, is watching this sermon again and uh, offering to you what the experience is like for a skeptic, for a non-believer to be watching a, a sermon like this. Uh, I just, I keep thinking about how on any given Sunday, or I think this, this sermon was done on a, a Wednesday night, um, that there are thousands of churches all over the country where there are people sitting there listening to ministers, pastors, priests, imams, whatever the case may be, telling them things and, and making a number of claims. And the experience of watching one of these sermons as a believer versus as a non-believer is very, very, very different. And I think that, I mean, I, so I was a Christian. I, I, I think that in my experience, when I would watch a Christian apologist or I would watch a minister make claims about non-believers and about science, um, I, would, I would take them seriously. I would accept their claims at face value. This is not something that I do anymore. Back then, I would I would watch the sermon and I would think this this is an effective way of communicating to the non-believer. Why don't we just tell them this, and then you know we'll be able to communicate to them in a way that's going to draw them closer, you know, to to Jesus or to to God. Um, and I think that a lot of Christians still think in this way. I think that it's it's normal to watch your pastor and to think, yeah, this is this is it. This is how we should be communicating to the non-believers. And I want to communicate to you in this video that that is not, <laughs> it's not the case. Um, so this is going to be a long video. Uh, this is a video that I've been very nervous about making because it, it is in a way sort of uh, deeply personal to me because I, I know the guy who's involved. Um, and I, I want to put two things on the table before we, we continue. I want to say something about the, the man who you're going to hear speaking, uh, who's Jay Wegter. Um, Jay is a good guy. Um, Jay cares passionately about people. Um, 
and has been a minister for decades. I mean, Jay has gone all over the world preaching to people, discipling people. Um, he's the, the, the head guy over at uh, it's Gospel for Life Ministries. Um, he is a uh, seminary professor. He's been a pastor. Um, this is a guy who has not only preached for, for decades, but also taught and mentored other pastors and, and preachers over the years. This is, this is a man who's, who's, who's influential. Um, and I don't want this video to be misconstrued as, as disparaging Jay or other pastors who, who say similar things. Um, I want to talk about how Jay and other pastors like him communicate um, and why it's a problem. I, I think that Jay sincerely believes that he's doing good work and that what he's doing is going to draw people closer to God. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about the problems with that as we dig into the, the content. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is bullshit more generally. Um, now, I'm hoping that this video is watched by Christians primarily, and then also by skeptics and, and atheists as well. Um, and I don't want you, if you're a Christian watching this, to think that I'm using the word bullshit to be vulgar or provocative. I'm referring specifically to a philosophical concept of bullshit that I've, I've made a prior video about. Um, there is a specific definition to this, which is speech that is is used uh, to to persuade people without regard for the truth of what's being said. Okay. Um, so when I say something is bullshit, I'm very, very specifically saying that this is a claim that's been made without regard to whether or not what's being said is true. And that the intention there appears to be to persuade the listener, not to bring the listener closer to knowing what's actually true. Um, and for the sake of clarity, when I say something is true, when I refer to truth, I'm talking about something corresponding with reality. Okay. So with all of that out of the way and on the table, let's, uh, let's dive in. Good evening and welcome. Welcome to our Wednesday night series. Let me pause real fast. <laughs> One thing is, uh, I got to apologize for the audio quality. Um, I, I, I don't know who even recorded this. I, the video I watched was on Facebook. It was like streamed on Facebook live. Someone who I don't know recorded that and uploaded it to YouTube. So that's, that's what we're using. Um, I don't think it was recorded with the intention of it, you know, being broadcast in this way. So the audio is going to be a little fuzzy, but you, you should be able to, to hear it. All right, let's keep going. The topic that was assigned to me was, uh, was does the Bible have a veracity that is in any way disproven by the theory of evolution. So when we think of that topic, uh, evolution versus the Bible, where would you think we ought to start? We start with fossil, fossil record, we start with the writings of Darwin, we start with uh, perhaps professors and institutions, I'm sorry, uh, institutions of higher learning or university, where would we start? All right, let's pause right there. This is a very, very good question. Where, where should we start? So the topic is the veracity of the Bible in any way disproven by the theory of evolution. So I think the best place we could possibly start would be by defining our terms. Okay, so what is evolution? 
Evolution is just change in a, a population's inherited traits from generation to generation. Okay. Darwin described it as descent with modification. The idea is that species change over time and that we share common ancestors. Okay. All species on earth originated by the mechanism of evolution, again, through descent from common ancestors. So the question on the table with this sermon is whether the alleged truth of the Bible is disproven by what we now know about the, the mechanism that explains biological diversity, essentially. Um, if Jay never defines what the theory of evolution is, he'll never be able to answer the question that this entire sermon is supposed to be about. Um, if he's asking about where we should start, if we want to understand the historical uh, development of, of the theory of evolution, then starting with the writing of Darwin would be would be a mistake. Um, it would be a mistake that I think would reveal an ignorance of history. Um, it might be smarter to start with Linnaeus or Jean-Baptiste Lamarck um, because Darwin didn't come up with evolution. Uh, Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace published a paper on natural selection as a mechanism by which evolution happens. Uh, Darwin, of course, published his book on the origin of species. Um, but before Darwin, naturalists had already figured out that different species were related. Darwin was more the guy who, who figured out that natural selection was a thing and that variation, um, inheritance, selection, and time were the factors that influenced natural selection. So that's what we should be talking about, okay? We're talking about what science has to say. We're talking about the, 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 the defining theory that, that all of biology makes sense in, under. Um, we're talking about that. We're talking about the diversity of life on Earth. So if we start talking about things like the origin of the universe, we start talking about other fields of, of science, um, we're, we've gotten away from ourselves. All right, let's keep, let's, where does Jay want to start? Let's, let's keep going. Would be God's own testimony about his work of creation. And I want to tell you why. All right, let's stop one more time. I don't want to talk about the educated men of the first century. So, he okay so he says we we want to start with god's own testimony and in this statement he's he's asserting a number of things he's he's asserting that there is a god that god has provided testimony that we have access to this testimony all of these claims have just been sort of smuggled in to the conversation um and they will not be justified um but they've been immediately accepted by some portion of the audience, in all likelihood, most, if not all of the audience, okay? Um, he's gonna go on to talk about why we should start with God's testimony. Let's keep going. The Apostle Paul started there as well. He started with God's relationship to the creation. So I'm going to begin with what's known as biblical cosmology. All right, let's pause one, one more time here. So he says we we start with with God's own testimony, and the reason for this is because one of the most educated men of the first century, the Apostle Paul, started there as well. This is a very strange uh, appeal to false authority. This is a this is a fallacy. Um, deferring to a legitimate authority on an issue is a good idea. That is not an appeal to false authority. If I want to know what's wrong with my car, and I go talk to a mechanic about it, and the mechanic tells me something, and I believe him or her, great. I've, I've, I've referred to an expert on this subject. If we want to know about where to start in a conversation 
about the theory of evolution and whether or not it conflicts with the Bible, saying, well, a very, very educated guy in the first century started with the Bible. Therefore, we should start with the Bible. This, this, this doesn't follow. Um, and we've made progress since the first century. Okay. We, we know an awful lot more about the world and about the cosmos and about the diversity of life on earth than we did during the first century. Deferring to first century experts on most things would be a mistake. It's interesting to note though, that when we talk about theology, if you were to sort of go back in time and consult with first century ideas about God and the Bible and Jesus, not a whole lot has changed. I just think that's, I just think that's interesting. So anyway, even if the Bible is true, the reason offered for consulting on this subject is a fallacious one. Let's keep going. Thank you, Michelle. That is a very real fossil there. That is either 300 million years old or a few thousand years old in determines age tonight. Okay, we got to stop because <laughs> saying holding up the fossil or, or pointing to the fossil, that is either 300 million years old or a few thousand years old. So the number I hear most often from young earth creationists is that the universe was created about 6,000 years ago. So if we're saying that fossil is either 300 million years old or around 6,000 years old, max, we're talking about a number 300 million, that's 50,000 times <laughs> the number offered by young earth creationists. The math on this is like saying that the distance from LA to New York is either 2,700 miles or about 300 feet. If someone came up to you and was like, <laughs> the distance from LA to New York is either 2,700 miles or roughly 300 feet, the science is out on this topic. Like how seriously would you take that? I, I, I say this just to emphasize the order of magnitude of what we're talking about with these claims. Okay, saying a fossil like that is 6,000 years old is like saying LA and New York are 300 feet apart. It's, it's nonsense. All right, and, and before he goes on, he's gonna talk about cosmology and I don't wanna keep breaking the video up like this. I wanna give Jay an opportunity to speak. Before he starts talking about cosmology, recognize that cosmology has nothing to do with evolution. Okay, evolution again, scientific theory explaining biological diversity, not the origins of the cosmos. So everywhere he's about to go, is, is a, it's a big red herring. Um, he's also gonna say, that um, the the sort of etymology of cosmology, um, that there's this word cosmos that refers in the Greek to something being beautifully arranged. That's nonsense. It's not true. Uh, cosmos literally means order or arrangement or can refer to the world and the logi part. We're talking about logia, which is discourse. So cosmology, discourse about order. That's, that's basically the, the root of the word. All right, let's keep going. So cosmology is the place we start. Cosmology is the branch of religious philosophy that deals with the nature and origin and structure of the cosmos. Now, perhaps the most famous cosmologist of the last 50 years, Stephen Hawking, went into eternity yesterday. So it's safe to say that I have respect for the man. His cosmology is now accurate. Believe it is because uh, you cannot come into the presence of God without knowing that God holds all things together, he made all things for his glory and for his purposes. Now, the word cosmology comes from the root cos 
ma, which means beautifully ordered. So I'm glad when my wife puts on some makeup in the morning, cosmetics, she comes out of the, out of, out of the bathroom beautifully ordered in her face. It's cos cosmology, cosmetics. And so our beautifully arranged and ordered universe is what cosmology is looking at here. Now, God is transcendent and God is eminent. We talk about God transcendent, that means he's not a part of the creation. Eminent means he entered time, space, mass in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, quick so pause. he makes himself known. Whenever this happens in a, in a sermon, you, you'll see this. You'll notice this if you're paying attention. Um, people will start offering up attributes of God without first establishing that the God that they're talking about even exists in the first place. Um, he, Jay knows that the audience is already with him on God existing. So at this point, he is free to just point to the Bible as if it were authoritative and say, well, the Bible says this, the Bible says this, while the audience uh, just sort of goes along with it uh, without thinking about it too deeply. So this, this, this is what's going through the skeptic's mind when they hear this, just so you know. All right, let's keep going. In his son, but he also is transcendent. He's separate from the universe, not a part of it. So God's relationship to the creation determines all other questions. He's creator, owner, lawgiver, defiler, holder, redeemer, and judge. Now, we've all heard of Ivy League schools such as Harvard, Dartmouth, Yale, Princeton, Cambridge, Oxford. These schools began as divinity schools. Now, when the pilgrims landed in Plymouth, they founded Harvard before they founded any industry. Right, let's There's pause. They believe that they could not have a well-ordered life. We got to pause. All right. Cambridge and Oxford aren't Ivy League schools, first of all. The, the point that he's making uh, is sort of valid a little bit. Uh, yeah. Uh, if you look at the history of Ivy League schools, uh, many of them, uh, if not most or all of them, were founded as, as divinity schools. We're talking about schools. I mean... He's he's fudging the history with with Harvard. I mean, he's the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth in 1620. Okay, the Massachusetts Bay Colony was founded in 1628. Harvard was founded in 1636 by the Massachusetts Colonial Legislature. All right, it is inaccurate to say that Harvard was founded before any other industries. All right, you had industries, you had shipbuilding, you had you had fur and lumber trades going on in in the Massachusetts Bay Colony before Harvard was founded. By 1632, you had ships that were built in the colony trading with England and with other colonies as well. Okay, so he's he's mistaken. He may be bullshitting. He may not care. He's probably just making a mistake here. But the, he's he's building on a foundation. He's saying Harvard was established before any, as a divinity school was established to teach people about God before any industries were started because the people in Massachusetts knew that they had to make sure people were getting the right information about God before they established any other industries. The The argument that he's making rests on faulty premises. And it's, and it's, it's weird because like the, <laughs> No one's going to deny that the pilgrims were super religious people who valued religion. There's there's ways that you could sort of make this argument that he's that he's making without having to to misrepresent or or get the history wrong. All right, let's keep going. That was profitable and useful and honoring to God unless they study some basic questions. Where do we come from? 
Who are we? Why are we here? Where are we going? Why is there evil, death, and suffering? What happens when you die? Now, do you think you can get those questions answered today if you go to a university? No. Yeah. You can get an entire education without having those ultimate questions even touched in university. But for almost 300 years, there was a perfect symbiosis between theology, between the sciences, and the liberal arts at Harvard. Almost 300 years, a perfect symbiosis between those two disciplines, theology and liberal arts. Only when humanism and the secular experiment just came in like a flood did that change. All right, pause. In fact, when there was this perfect symbiosis, it is sort of accurate to say that for 300-ish years that there was this symbiosis of religion and education at, at Harvard. It's also accurate to say that if you were black or a woman, you couldn't go there. <laughs> there's, there's, it's not a great history um, during those years. Um, it's also inaccurate the way that he's representing sort of the shift toward more of a, of a secularized education. Okay. Uh, if you look at the history of Harvard, there was a, a president of Harvard from the 1860s to the early uh, 20th century, Charles William Eliot, who um, he, he was the guy who sort of de-Christianized Harvard and pushed for a more secular education. Um, it wasn't because he was a secular humanist. He was, he, he was a, a Unitarian, if, if I'm not mistaken. Um, fact check me on that. I should have done more research before talking about this, but yeah, the 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 shift away from Christianity in a very like puritanical sense, having this favored position at Harvard, didn't necessarily have a lot to do with secular humanism as much as the rise of transcendentalist Unitarian ideas in the United States, um, the influence of Enlightenment era thinkers. Um, so yeah, he's he's not getting this right, um, and and. It's important we should establish really quick what secular humanism is, because uh, he's going to talk about it. Um, so secular humanism, uh, which he's not going to define, he's going to leave it hanging like this specter over the audience, this spooky thing out in the ether that's come to to take God out of your schools. But secular humanism is just the idea that humanity is capable of morality and reason without appealing to anything outside of ourselves, outside of humanity such as allegedly holy books or gods that haven't been demonstrated to exist. Um, so, yeah. And and with regards to education, yes, it is possible to get a college education, um, not just in the United States, but all over the world, without having these sort of more deep philosophical questions answered. If you're going to college for, you know, engineering, you might not care about <laughs> those philosophical ideas about why we're here. And you might just kind of focus on your engineering classes. Um, but if you want to dig into these questions, there's plenty of resources for it. So he's he's, he's misrepresenting education uh, more broadly, which it, it, this, there's going to be a theme here. I might as well just, just, just say this in the sermon of straw manning. Okay. There's this, this practice, if you're not familiar with what that is, it's, it's misrepresenting, presenting a weaker version of an opposing viewpoint to your own. And then attacking that weaker position rather than attacking what the actual position is of the people that you're ostensibly engaging with. Okay. So you're not going to see Jay, you're not going to see apologists broadly presenting the best versions of the arguments against their positions and engaging with them. You'll see them misrepresenting the other position and then attacking those straw man versions um, more often than not. All right, let's keep going.
diagnosis between theology and liberal arts, people believe that what is in this book is an accurate representation of what's out there in the world. We call that correspondence. What's in this Bible corresponds to what is in reality. But secular humanism changed all that. We're going to see in a moment how that's affected things. So this is what the Apostle Paul said on Mars Hill. He was dealing with the smartest philosophers in the world in Athens, Greece. And this is what he said to these philosophers, Stoics, Epicureans, Gnostics. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he's Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he right. served by human hands. Let's pause. As though there wouldn't have been any Stoics there because Stoics didn't come around until the third century. Um, but the idea there's this there's this story about about the Apostle Paul being in Athens and engaging with philosophers, and he makes a bunch of claims. Okay, so about God holding the universe together. So so if you're following, if you're paying attention here, if you're if you're not just sitting in the pew nodding along with what Jay says, we don't have anything yet about evolution. We just have an assertion from a first century guy that God holds the universe together. We don't have any reason yet to take anything that Paul or Jay has asserted seriously. We're not being given any reasons to believe any of this stuff is true. And, and Jay refers to the created world, okay? We're smuggling in creation without demonstrating that there is a creator, okay? And, and you'll see, you're, you're gonna hear this over and over and over again. Um, for friends of mine who are atheists and skeptics who are watching this, you're, you're going to be pulling your, your hair out by the end of this because it's just going to be repeatedly asserted that we live in creation without there ever being a demonstration that there is a, a creator that would justify referring to the world, the cosmos, anything as creation. Okay, let's keep going. No, he needed anything. Since he himself gives life, gives to all people life and breath and all things, for in him, we live and move and exist and live and move and exist. And, whoops, I had that twice there. Sorry about that. So in him, we live and move and exist. In other words, God upholds everything he created. We're utterly dependent upon him. We can refer to this as God's relationship to the universe, God's relationship to the cosmos. Now, when you think about the created world, do you think about it as having moral order just as fixed as physical order? Well, that's what we see in the book of Psalms and other Old Testament passages. Uh, in the book of Psalms, there's a perfect transition, almost a seamless transition from God's order in the creation to God's order morally in his law. And so the laws of old that God put in place in both areas, physical and moral, have specific effects and results and consequences and benefits. So how would you explain to an unbeliever that we live in a moral universe? Ooh, pause. Anybody so, just... <laughs> unbeliever here. Um, so, we don't live in a moral universe. Morals change over time, and this is obvious. Even the morality of, of the Bible, in many ways, is not recognized by modern Christians. The most obvious place here would be slavery, okay? When you read Exodus and Leviticus and you see not... The Bible condemning slavery, but legislating it and guiding it. And then you see in the New Testament, you see 
slaves being told to obey their masters as if they were obeying God. <laughs> there's there's a mandate in the Bible for slavery, um, which is a practice that now, generally speaking, we all look at as being immoral. Okay, things change over time. Um, there's there's a I mean the more you look at the Bible there's there's an awful lot of stuff in there that we would not look at as moral now. Okay, so when when preachers when apologists refer to us living in a moral universe, the we as a species have morality because we recognize that our actions have consequences on each other and on ourselves. Okay. That's what morality is. It's the discussion about how we should and should not be interacting with each other. Okay. The idea that this extends to the universe is, is absurd. Um, it's not moral or immoral when, you know, a, a star explodes or when, when, things happen off of our planet, you know, when an, an asteroid or a comet, you know, something collides with another celestial body. There's no morality here because there's nothing to feel or experience those things. When we start talking about morality, we're specifically dealing with the realm of human experience. We're talking about how our actions affect others and, and the feelings and the experiences that those, those cause. All right. So he's, he's, he's asserting that, that, there's something analogous with physical laws and moral laws. Um, but we, when we talk about physical laws, we're talking about things that we observe. We're talking about how the universe behaves. We're, it's, it's, a, it's a descriptive, not a prescriptive thing. Okay. When we're talking about moral laws and how we should or should not be you know, interacting with each other and the effects that our actions have on each other, now we're talking about prescriptive laws. We're talking about what we should do, not just what happens and how the universe is. Let's keep going. Pose a sentence. How would you explain to an unbeliever who live in a moral universe? Universal moralities. All right. And there are certain rights and laws that transcend religion and culture and education. All right. Thanks, Randy. Sometimes we call this natural law. There's a recognition that you can't have an orderly society permits theft, larceny, premeditated murder. You can't have an orderly society that permits those things. So there's a lot, of, a lot of natural law that we just recognize instinctively. But biblically, we would say the way you prove that we live in a moral universe, it's creator, owner, ruler, and lawgiver is righteous. He is the source of a transcendent moral code. All right, let's pause. We live in a moral universe because it's great. So this idea that God is the source of morality. Um, I would direct anybody who wants to think about this. Um, if you're a, if you're a believer, if you've never read, um, the dialogue, uh, the Plato wrote of, uh, Socrates and Euthyphro. Okay. There's a question that is posed. So in, in that dialogue, um, Socrates, like he does, asks Euthyphro a bunch of really frustrating questions about piety. Um, and, Ultimately, where Euthyphro arrives is that something is pious, something is a morally good thing, if it is if it is loved by the gods. So then Socrates, like he does, asks Euthyphro, is the pious loved by the gods because it is pious, or is it pious because it is loved by the gods? In other words, is something moral because God commands it, or does God command it? 
because it's moral. Just, 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 just marinate on that. Okay. There's this idea, depending on who you talk to. I mean, Christians will typically say something is moral because God commands it, but that makes morality arbitrary. It's, it's just whatever God subjectively thinks is, is good. So this idea of there being some transcendent moral code, it's not, it's just whatever God decides. But if God is bound by morality, if God commands things because they're moral, then morality exists somewhere outside of God and it's grounded somewhere else. Um, this is this is a problem for people who who assert that morality and God are are linked. Um, this this dilemma has not been resolved in any meaningful way since the time of Plato. So when someone just asserts that morality comes from God, um, you know, ask him about Euthyphro. All right, let's keep going. Creator is moral. He's the source of morality. Well, there's only two cosmologies when you get right down to it. Only two cosmologies. Either this is an open universe, created, upheld, and acted upon by our transcendent God, or this is a closed universe like a little aquarium, like a box, like a terrarium, and all reality is contained within it, including whatever may be the body. That second view is called a one-box or pantheistic view. Everything is contained in it. Big problem with that. If you have no word from outside on what we are, why we're here, what the universe is, then you're basically trying to explain what's in the box by what's in the box. I, I sometimes use this example with my students. If uh, a little boy walked into the room, he's holding a jar with a bug in it. The little boy explains the jar with a bug in it. The bug does not explain the jar and the boy. So we, we depend upon our creator to really tell us what is going on in life. Our public schools and universities are indoctrinating students with the lies inherent in pantheistic cosmology. Everything is contained in this one box. There's no transcendent God who's overall ruling and holding all things together. And they're actually teaching our young people a kind of cosmology, a view of the universe. So in that one box view, the universe is self-originating, self-sustaining, and self-defining but meaningless. So our young people are cast adrift. I saw a recent poll recently that said 75% uh, of college students are longing to know the meaning of life. They don't have an identity that gives them any dignity at all. And as a result, they're trying to establish their own meaning and their own identity. I was sharing gospel on the uh, let's pause. Western Michigan University. Let's pause. Because... Everything has a material cause is not, broadly speaking, what is taught in the academy. He's conflating philosophical naturalism and metaphysical naturalism. The philosophical naturalism is the assertion that the natural world is all that is. Metaphysical naturalism is generally more the idea that the natural world is all we can explore. It's all, it's all that we can you know, know about. What is taught is not that everything has a material cause but rather that we can only investigate the material natural world. And therefore, when we talk about what we can know, what causes we can explain, what causes we can understand, we're limited to the natural world. 
we can't appeal to the supernatural in science because the supernatural as up to this point can only be asserted and not tested. So appeals to the supernatural are, are speculative. When it comes to science, the academy is, is concerned with what can actually be demonstrated to be true. It's actually, I misspoke. It's not that the supernatural can't be tested. There have been, you know, people, people can test for supernatural claims. Um, if someone says that, you know, there are ghosts, if someone says that there are spirits or demons or whatever, you know, there, there are ways of, of investigating those claims to see if we can verify that they're true or if there's anything there. Um, thus far, you know, it's a big nothing burger when it comes to supernatural claims. Um, so again, he's, he's, he's misrepresenting education. He's misrepresenting what happens in the process of getting an education, especially as it pertains to, to scientific claims. Scientists, if you go, and it's so frustrating because, you know, there's no scientist in the room here with Jay to interject when something that is wrong or false is being said. I thought about this, if it's fair to even make this video, because it's not like Jay can interact with what I'm saying, but that was where I went in my mind. I was like, well, there's no scientist there to counter all the bullshit that's being put on the table in this sermon. Um, scientists aren't going to tell you the material world's all there is. They're just going to tell you that it's it's all we can test. Okay. And when we talk, and when he says like a materialistic worldview removes people's, uh, you know, like intrinsic purpose, all this stuff. One, it, that's not, that's not necessarily true. The idea that you are free to define what your own purpose is in the absence of something being imposed on you by a religion isn't necessarily a bad thing. But, but just to just to rewind, evolution is not materialism. Evolution is just explaining. It's just explaining the diversity of life. That's it. You don't have to be a materialist to recognize evolution as the mechanism by which we have all these species crawling around. All right, let's keep going. As I was speaking to different students, I said, uh, why does your life have more value than a German shepherd? It's <laughs> we have value because of the to the German shepherd, it doesn't. Value is subjective. Asking somebody the question, this is the thing Jay does. You'll see it a couple more times in the sermon. He'll be like, I was talking to this guy and I asked them X. And the questions themselves are often formulated in a way that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But also when it's like you're on a college and you just spring a question like this on somebody, imagine you're, you're in college, you're, you're coming out of, you know, whatever class you run into a preacher on your campus who asks you, why does your life have more value than a German shepherd? And just be like, what? <laughs> like, what you Look, yeah. To the German shepherd, their life is, is probably more valuable than yours to you. Your life is probably more valuable because we're, we're talking about values are necessarily subjective. Okay. Um, I, I hate this 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 format and the way that these anecdotes come out. I was, you know, I was just talking to some random person about this random thing. I I had this experience the other day um, of of being a co-host on uh, the Colin show, The Perspective, over on YFNA's network, and um, I asked someone about what knowledge is and and how they would define what knowledge is, and. I've seen atheists do this to people and be like, can you define knowledge? And the person on the other, you know, line or on, you know, they're, whoever they're talking to stalls. And they're like, I don't like, I don't know. I have to think about this. Like, what, what are we even talking about here? And I've seen skeptics dive on the person then and be like, yeah, you don't even know what knowledge is. But the, <laughs> the thing is, this person probably hasn't really thought about it. Um, and you're putting someone on the spot. 
Um, I've seen it happen to people where someone asks, you know, how do you know what you know? And someone's like, okay, uh, shit. And <laughs> it's, it's unfair to, to make judgments about these people or to then uphold what they say when they're put on the spot, asked to give an answer to something that they probably haven't thought too deeply about. And then to be like, yeah, see, they don't even know anything. It's, it's not a charitable practice and people shouldn't do it. All right. Off my high horse. Let's keep going. Contributions we make to society. I said, well, what about quadriplegia? We cannot even communicate. Does he have any innate value? Or has he lost all value? He goes, well, he probably has value because he's loved by someone. I said, what about a paraplegic who's alienated everybody's ever met? Is this guy can only supply a utilitarian meaning, a utilitarian definition of value. Couldn't supply innate value because he has he has a cosmology which does not see a God God making us in His image and likeness. Or he hadn't thought about it. So these two opposing views of reality can kind of be summarized like this: in a chance universe, matter makes itself. Sometimes called the Big Bang. It actually wasn't big, and it wasn't bang. It was actually supposed to be a pea-sized chunk of something that exploded into our current cosmos. In a chance universe, matter makes itself, then makes the cosmos, then makes man, and then man comes up with the idea of God and soul and heaven and hell. Pause, please. My friends, so, this has become... The, the idea of the Big Bang Theory is not that matter made itself. It's that there was matter that existed in a, a super condensed state with all this potential energy and then it rapidly expanded into the universe that we have today. Um, when you, when you hear people talking about matter making itself, they are straw manning cosmology. They are not being honest about what is taught. They're not being honest about what, researchers and leaders in, in the worlds of, of cosmology and physics actually say or think it's, it's just bullshit. Um, man, is it frustrating? And, and just, just think about the difference in how ideas are presented from someone speaking from a position of authority, strawmanning the position of experts saying, there's only two ways to think about it. Matter just makes itself or it's just contrast that with how you will actually hear experts talking about this stuff. It's, it's a very, very different way of talking. And the, the way that, that knowledge itself in these fields is presented in, in the world of science, you have to, if you can't show it, then you don't know it. As Aaron Ross says in the world of science, you have to be able to demonstrate stuff. You have to be able to test stuff. And even then, all the knowledge is just tentatively held. In science, we have our, our best models for explaining what we've observed, but we don't just go, okay, we know that this is it and put a, a pin on it and go, we've, we've got the thing figured out. Everything in science is subject to falsifiability. Everything in science is, is, is it's encouraged for things to be tested. If, if, if you're a scientist, and you run up against the best working model for explaining something that we've observed in the natural world, and then you are able to demonstrate where there's a fault in what we think we know, if you're able to advance the field, that's a good thing. 
Scientists get all excited when their ideas get disproven. That's how we make progress. It's just, it, it, I wish more people would focus on this difference in how ideas are communicated. Um, it, it's, 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 it's mind boggling to me. Let's, let's, let's keep going. The prevalent religious worldview and philosophy of every major political education center in the Western world. We're paying a huge price for it. Now look how radically different the biblical trajectory is from that. In biblical theism, God creates the universe from nothing, and then he forms mankind from the dust of the earth, and then he reveals himself to mankind by his creation, by his son, and by his infallible word. Now, when we say in the academy, we mean public universities. In public universities, faith in scripture is now seen as an impediment to knowledge. But scripture states the opposite. The fear of the Lord, it is the reverence for God, is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 1 and 7. Now, this verse in the middle of this PowerPoint is extremely important to our talk tonight. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. Ooh, okay, we got to stop. So what is seen was not made up. Okay, faith. If you're a believer and you're watching this, please, 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 more than anything else, if you take anything that I say seriously today, let it be this. Faith does not get you to truth. Okay? Faith does not get you to knowledge. Faith is the reason people give for believing in something when they don't have evidence. If you have evidence and someone asks you, why do you believe this thing? You give them evidence. If you don't have evidence, then you offer faith. And there is, there's nothing that you cannot justify believing in on faith. You can say you believe the earth is flat based on faith. You can say you believe that the prophet Muhammad flew to heaven on the back of a winged horse. And you can believe that on faith. And people do. You can believe Jesus rose from the dead on faith. This is not... <laughs> This is not a path to knowledge. This is not a path to truth, okay? For something to be true, like I said at the very beginning of this, it, it has to correspond to reality. And if you cannot demonstrate that what you're saying has some relationship to what's real, then asserting that it's true and using faith to prop it up as the foundation for your statement, I, I, I hate to say it to you, but it's dishonest. It is intellectually dishonest, all right? So when, when someone says, by faith, we can know, there should be a big red flag, okay? Because you can use those words to justify belief in anything. By faith, we can know fucking whatever, all right? Don't fall into that trap, okay? Demand good reasons for believing in the things that you believe. And don't be taken in by people who will encourage you to leave your reason at the door so that you can embrace unjustified things on faith. All right, let's keep going. Now, what was visible? See, what's taught in the academy today is that everything has a material cause, including it's not. prayer, love, good and evil. All these things have a material cause. This is absurd. The 
in a chance universe, you have a mind but not a soul. In a chance universe, your thoughts are merely chemical function, merely low voltage electricity passing through synapses across neurons. I quick you really have no soul. So what he's doing here, first of all, the idea that we live in a chance universe is is kind of a weird one because There's this idea that gets put forward that it's like if God isn't, you know, sort of holding the strings and navigating how and, and, and dictating how everything performs in the universe, then everything is just chance. But we can observe that reality seems to follow a certain set of rules. Um, the, the, the natural laws that we describe, um, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about how the universe performs in ways that we can test in ways that are repeatable. OK, the universe. You know, if I if I drop a pen, it's gonna fall, you know, to the ground ten times out of ten. All right, there's something happening there. If if I was to let go of the pen and it just, you know, every once in a while it's just gonna float up in the sky, we'd be living in a chance universe. But that's not how it, it works. Okay, so the the language being used here is is it's not really meant to provide clarity. Okay, about about how the universe we live in actually functions. All right. Um, I just, so I just have to point that out. And what, what Jay is doing is now he's going to say, if we live in a chance universe, what he, what he means is if we live in a universe without God, then there's a bunch of consequences that you might not like. But this has nothing to do with whether or not it's true. If we live in a world without the biblical God, then you don't have a soul. Well, maybe. Is, the, is it true? Do, do we have a soul? Does it matter? Do we, are, we, are we speaking in a way where the truth is at the, the center of what we're talking about? No, we're talking about whether or not the belief is is comforting, okay? It's it, it. This is not a discussion about what's true, all right? Saying, if there's no biblical God, then you don't have a soul. Well, maybe there's no biblical God. Maybe I don't have a soul. What's real, okay? And, and, and this way of speaking about it is not encouraging people to ask questions in light of what's true, but more in light of what's going to make them feel good. All right, let's keep going. My friends is... Uh top intellectual in India, Vishal Mangalwadi, and he said this, what secular humanism has done is amputated the soul and cast us headlong naked into a black cesspool of razor wire. Now C.S. Lewis says, said something similar in The Abolition of Man. He said, when you remove the soul of man, you're left with nothing but the enshrine, enshrinement of animal passion. Pretty soon, Virtue disappears. The whole value of working for virtue goes away, and animal passion is enshrined. So, second paragraph here if we're just the product of blind material forces, then there's really no basis for moral responsibility for a transcendent moral code or for moral free agency. Now, that last one needs a definition. What is moral free agency? That means that you're responsible for all your ethical choices. You can't blame them on how much sugar you had. You can't blame them on your upbringing. You can't even blame them on the drugs you might have taken last night. You're utterly responsible for your moral choices. All right, let's pause. You stand before God and give an account. All you need for a moral code is a consideration of how your actions affect others. That's it. That's it. That's all you need. And we're talking about morality in the context of the Bible. We're talking about morality in the context of a belief system that says that 
all of your sins can be forgiven and you can spend eternity in the presence of God if you will believe a certain set of things. Your eternal salvation, where you end up, be it heaven or hell, has nothing to do with moral responsibility and everything to do with whether you're willing to accept certain unjustified claims using faith. Okay. If you are a person who dedicates their life to helping the poor and the sick and the needy, and all you do from dusk till dawn is just care about your fellow man and dedicate yourself to making other people's lives better. And, and that that's, that's everything that you're about, but you don't believe in Jesus on Jay's worldview, you're doomed. Meanwhile, you could be the worst of the worst, you know, serial killer, pedophile, rapist on death row and on your deathbed, have a preacher come in and talk to you and convert and believe in Jesus and you're spending eternity in heaven. Let's not pretend that this worldview has anything to do with moral accountability or responsibility. All right. It's, it's <laughs> like, if you think about it for, for a second, honestly, it, this has nothing to do with, with moral responsibility. Let's keep going. Life, because behind God's laws is his full authority to enforce what he's commanded. But a materialistic worldview removes all of that. So how do we get to this point in education? Well, according to passages such as Jeremiah 17, 9, one of the main characteristics of sin is self-deception. Our capacity to fool ourselves, according to Jeremiah 17, 9, is past finding out. We can't even research just how far gone we are in terms of self-deception. And as a result, we prefer irrationality rather than thinking clearly about God. So the natural man, the man who's not born again, actually convinces himself that what he knows about the world is true is not true. Now, scripture describes this in Romans 1, 18-23 as suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And so we'll look at that passage in just a minute here, Romans 1, 18-23, but it is such a revealer. The Apostle Paul tells us why so many people, highly educated people, reject God's testimony as creator. It's not because they, they found something like this. This is the vertebrae of an actual right, let's, let's, let's dinosaur. In Romans 1, Paul gives people who have wholly unsubstantiated beliefs the ability to look down on people who care about whether their beliefs are actually true. All right. This is one of the most frustrating verses in the entire Bible. There is this bald ass assertion that people who don't believe the claims of the Bible, deep down, they know that the claims of the Bible are actually true, but they're just suppressing that truth. There's no reason to believe that this is true. It is just a claim that cannot be demonstrated. It's a completely unfalsifiable claim. But it gives a Christian the ability to walk into 
a research university where there's scientists saying, we've been working on this for decades. Here's our model with regards to, you know, how we arrived at this, this uh, biological diversity on our, on our planet. Look at all of this super cool evidence for evolution. And a Christian can go, well, Genesis says that God just spoke the animals into existence as they are in all their different kinds. So that's what's true. And then when confronted with the evidence can say, you guys are just suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. You know, deep down that the account in Genesis of the creation is what's true. This is nonsense. It's dishonest. Okay. Making these unfalsifiable claims. This is not a way to know what's true or to engage with the truth in any meaningful way to just say, ah, they know they're just suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. It, it should be obvious. Okay. Imagine if you were confronted with any claim in this way. Okay. If, if someone tells you that there are leprechauns and you're like, I'm not sure they're leprechauns. Do you have any evidence of leprechauns? And they tell you, well, you know, deep down where the, le that the leprechauns are real. You're just suppressing the truth because you don't want to believe it. Is that compelling to you? If you're a Christian watching this, I promise you it's not compelling to any non-believer when you say this to them. All right, let's keep going. The social going gun, so-called Mosasaur, was very, very quickly, so quickly, that this incredible soft tissue in the spinal cord is still preserved. He, he did, wasn't laying on some mud flat, deteriorating, being picked apart by vultures. He was buried almost instantaneously, and his skeleton was quartzitized. This is part of the spinal cord right here. This speaks of a catastrophe. It speaks of a cataclysm. <clears throat> and so biblically, who is actually the fool? According to scripture, and if you go to the Bible, I'll mention what the steps are to foolishness according to uh, Romans 1, 18. These are the steps to foolishness, according to scripture. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Dear friends, people who have never seen the Bible or even heard the name of Jesus have to deal with two great testimonies God has given about his creation. Number one, they look around and they see rainbows, rainfall, flowers, bees, having babies. They look around at the creation and God says, my wisdom, my goodness, my attributes are clearly seen in the creation. God made it evident to them. But it also says God made it evident in them. And so the second great testimony God has given of his creatorship is your conscience. Your conscience, creation of conscience, before you even ever open the Bible or hear of Jesus. These are two great witnesses God has given. But what does a natural man do with these two great witnesses of himself? Listen. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes and eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So God right. says, look at his fine. attributes, his character qualities, his so we're we're just retreading the same ground here all right the idea is that you know the non-believer knows what's true they're just suppressing the truth and unrighteousness if they disagree with you about it they're a fool and the bible is like no no really they know 
<laughs> imagine, imagine, let's go back to the leprechaun thing. If someone came up to you, hey, there are leprechauns. How do you know? I've got this book that says there are leprechauns. Why should we care what that book thinks? Well, the book says that you already know there are leprechauns. What? Well, the book also says that if you disagree with me, that you're a fool. How long would you keep this conversation going? It's like, who, who gives a shit what that book says? Why should I care? And he's going to keep returning to the text. He's going to keep trying to use the Bible to justify the Bible, which he can't do. Okay. That, that, that's not how it works. The Bible is the claim, not the evidence. All right. The evidence is what is used to support the claim. All right. So, <laughs> I mean, and he's going to, this, this is going to happen a lot um, with just kind of retreading this idea that it's like, well, no, they already know they're just suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. But, but these are just claims that there are no reason to believe. All right. Also, really quickly, I just Googled the definition of fool. Um, I, uh, you know, a person lacking in judgment or prudence. Also, a person who's been tricked or deceived into appearing or acting silly or stupid. Um, there's recommendations. There's uh, recommendations. There's, there's uh, definitions that uh, talk about people who just lack good judgment or lack sense or understanding. Um, so yeah, the Bible's like anybody who disagrees with what, what, what's said in here, you're a fool. That's just an ad hominem. That's not, that's just a fallacious thing there happening. Um, whereas in any colloquial sense, in any, in other context, um, a fool is just a person who lacks judgment. So, you know, what do we do with that? Let's keep going. Majesty, his might, his wisdom, his goodness are clearly evident in the creation. Just claims, just claims. One of my good friends, his wife is a, she teaches theological writing. Rebecca Jones, wife of Dr. Peter Jones. And she went to the Grand Canyon with her sister. And they'd never seen the Grand Canyon. And she and her sister as adults both stood on the South Rim. And they both shed a tear. And Rebecca said, I cried at the beauty because God made it. And her sister said, I cried because it was so lovely and there was no mention of the creator. My friends were both presented with the same data in creation, but there's two immensely different responses. And according to this passage, if you're not born again, you're going to take the truth and the beauty and the witness God has put in creation, and you're going to step it back down. It's like trying to hold 12 ping pong balls underwater in a swimming pool. They're always going to keep popping up. Won't be able to hold them all down. So this is what happens next. When they're suppressing the truth of God and their righteousness, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they were but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Does that sound a little bit like some of our unbelieving professors today? They don't give thanks. They suppress the truth they knew about God. They speculate, then they pronounce themselves wise. Let's pause. Let's pause. There's a way that I often hear preachers and apologists representing these like straw man professors. There's no, there's no college professor in the room there. You know, there's no, there's no, well, not, not in the, it's Jay is a, a college professor. Um, but there's, there's no, there are no scientists in, in the room to talk about, well, wait a minute. That's not what we do. <laughs> what are you talking about? Why are you talking about us like this? I want, if you're a non-believer, I want you to think about the experience of being in the pews. Cause I, I would like very much if, if we can also just empathize here, you're sitting there, you're hearing things said to you by this authority figure. You're hearing 
everybody out there deep down believes the same stuff that I believe and they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Those people are all fools. I, meanwhile, you know, I've got this knowledge that's, you know, revealed from God that I have, you know, that I believe on faith. And all these people out there in the academy who are doing all this research, they're just speculating and pronouncing themselves wise, which is a gross mischaracterization of what they actually do. I mean, this, he, he, he is lying about what happens in research universities. He's lying about what actually happens and about how these people are. Please, if you're a believer, if you if you are the a person who who this is the type of thing that is preached at your church, please go to a local university, just go into the biology department, knock on the door of somebody who's doing their office hours and and ask them about the scientific method. Ask them about what they do. I, I once heard, um, I think it was Sam Harris said that you're as likely to encounter uh, nudity at a scientific conference as you are to encounter arrogance. And that's that's really true. It, when when you hear how scientists talk, everything is is sort of, they're, they're constantly um, like hedging. It's always like, listen, well, this is where we're at now based on these experiments. And this is what we understand right now. But, you know, I could be wrong. And we're, we're constantly trying to find new understandings on these, these things. The, the scientific method truly does not allow for the type of arrogance um, and just asserting speculative bullshit the way that Jay is acting like it does. This is, this is really, really offensive to people who are actually doing the work. Um, and again, it allows people who have not done the work to look down their noses at the fools who are out there actually credentialed scientists doing, doing the work. Let's, let's keep going. This passage goes on to say that they exchanged the glory of knowing the one true God for the image of beasts and birds and reptiles. They gave credit to their origin to creeping things and slithering things and crawling things. Rather than giving God the glory for making them in his image, they gave credit to amoebas and slime for their existence. Incredible. Scripture says that is folly, that's foolishness. Well, Darwinism has left a very deadly legacy, uh, incredibly deadly. Karl Marx and Das Kapital wrote a thank you Charles Darwin had been dead, and in that book where he thanked Darwin, he basically said something like this, thank you for giving me a scientific basis for totalitarianism and political engineering. Pause. When Adolf Hitler wanted All right. I don't know how many people in that audience read Das Kapital. Um, just so happens I've read it. <laughs> uh, it, it what, what he's describing is not true. Um, Darwin is cited in Das Kapital two times, I believe. I think that what Jay is referring to is that in, in Darwin's correspondence, there are a couple of letters 
that uh, are out, they're out there in the public domain. You can you can read this stuff. Where uh, in Marx's correspondence with Engels, he talks about how Darwin's book contains a basis in natural history for our their their view of of sort of social and political progress taking place sort of incrementally over time in the same way that organisms would, you know, that, that biological diversity would happen incrementally over time. That's basically it. Um, he, in, in one of his uh, letters, uh, not to Engels, um, but he, he talks about how Darwin's book is important and serves as a basis in natural science for, for class struggle. Um, but that's it. He, he talks about it being sort of, there, there being a parallel between the struggle of organisms and the struggle of, of classes. Um, Marx also corresponded with Darwin a little bit. Um, he sent Darwin uh, a copy of Das Kapital, saying that you know he's like I you know I, I appreciate your work. Here's here's mine. Darwin wrote back again. These letters are in the public domain. You can you can read them. Darwin basically wrote back to Marx and was like, Hey, thanks. Um, I wish I you know was more interested in in uh, politics and could could better understand all this stuff and. Uh, Marx, by all accounts, really, really, um, it getting the correspondence back from Darwin, it was just like, he was very, very happy about it. But Darwin's copy of Das Kapital, um, it looks like it wasn't fully read. Uh, if you, if you read about Darwin's estate, um, it used to be when they print books, you'd have to, you'd have to cut the pages to, to read them. And Darwin did not get through all of Das Kapital, but he still sent Marx like a nice note. Um, I'm getting sidetracked by the history here because <laughs> Darwin and Marx are, are fascinating figures. Um, there's a lot going on with, with those guys. Uh, and Darwin was just, just a real gentleman. Um, and he, he didn't like his, his science being used to prop up various political ideas. Um, he also didn't like his ideas being used to attack religion. Um, there's actually another letter that was sent to, that was, that was found as sort of in Marx's stuff after he died, where, uh, Darwin, he'd been asked, um, basically there was another book that was, that was written by an atheist talking about how Darwinism destroyed like Christianity or, or, you know, anyway, the long story short is this, uh, Darwin wrote a letter saying that he didn't like his um, his ideas being used to fight religion. He didn't like engaging with religious ideas directly, and that he essentially believed that that an exploration of the natural world and embracing science was a better way to sort of erode bad ideas rather than confronting them directly. Because he found that confronting bad ideas directly didn't really it wasn't persuasive persuasive to the people who held the bad ideas. Basically, was where it was at. Um, I'm kind of filibustering here in a way I've just realized because like, I don't like where this goes next in the sermon. Um, acting like evolution, acting like the theory that explains, you know, descent with modification, biological diversity, acting like that serves as the basis for the things that Jay is about to say is so dishonest. It's, uh, I hate that I'm about to subject you to this, but let's keep going. A pure race and was having disabled people pushed out of four-story buildings. He believed he was doing science. That's a lie. He was favoring certain things to make a gene pool that was pure. 
when Tuskegee University allowed 600 African Americans to be experimented upon, half of them not knowing they had syphilis, letting the disease run its course without treating them, they thought they were being consistent with Darwinian science. When Stalin, who also wrote a thank you to Darwin, purged hundreds of thousands of his own countrymen off the face of the earth to try to produce a totally atheistic society, he was given credit to Charles Darwin's theory. And then pictured here is the killing fields of Pol Pot, the Cambodian dictator, before he ever began instructing systematically in communism, he instructed systematically in Darwinism to erase the need for a creator before his purge. My friends, Darwinism has left a deadly legacy. We've got to pause because Margaret Sanger, founder of This is this is it's it's so bad. It's so dishonest. I've already said that there's nothing about evolution that even addresses the question of whether or not there was a creator. Nothing. Suggesting that, and, and he's propping up Darwin, suggesting that Darwin's ideas that Evolution by means of natural selection leads to biological diversity, okay? That this can be used to justify murder and genocide is, um, it's a reprehensible slander. Um, there's, there's no other way of putting this. It, this is... It's, it's a way of sidestepping the question of whether or not evolution is true. It, it, you, you're going to find people who are reprehensible, who do evil things on all sides of, of a bunch of issues. Okay. You, you can point to the history of Christianity and find people who use Christianity as a justification for horrific violence. But that has nothing to do with whether the claims of Christianity are true. And if someone were to come to you, if you're a believer watching this and bring up the Inquisition or the Crusades and say, look at all these evil things that Christians have done. I hope that you would recognize that this is just a big red herring they're waving around that has nothing to do with whether or not the, the claims made in the Bible have any relationship to, to what's real or true. This is the same thing that's that's happening with Jay right now. He's he's misrepresenting evolution, he's misrepresenting history, and he is essentially slandering Darwin so that he can avoid having to deal with whether or not evolution is true. Um, it, this is it's 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 disgusting, frankly. Let's keep going. You'll never hear this from the Planned Parenthood politicians, but she was a regular speaker at the Ku Klux Klan. She said the colored races, the races of color, the brown races ought to be pulled like weeds. This is the founder of Planned Parenthood. She encouraged eugenics, human breeding, to purify the race. 
This is all traceable to Darwin theory, Darwin's theory. Quick pause. What he's what he just said about Margaret Sanger is is generally true. Yeah, Margaret Sanger was uh, a racist who supported eugenics, and Margaret Sanger was was the founder of Planned Parent of Planned Parenthood. Um, that has nothing to do with anything with regards to whether or not the claims of evolution are true. Um, yeah, Margaret Sanger sucks. Um, Planned Parenthood does a lot of really good work. It's a it's a great organization now, um, and it provides health services to you know women who wouldn't have it otherwise that are, that are essential. I mean, Planned Parenthood's awesome. Um, yeah, their founder sucked. What, what does that have to do with evolution? And, and remember, please remember this whole sermon, everything about this was supposed to be, does evolution <laughs> show that the Bible's not true? That is what the topic of this sermon is about. You should be sitting here going, what the fuck is he talking about <laughs> the entire time? Because none of this has anything to do with the topic. Okay, let's keep going. See, knowing God is what our knowledge is dependent upon. Our knowledge depends upon God's knowledge. He knew himself perfectly, then he made a cosmos and put us in it. We're created to reflect his moral majesty in our relationships to love and truth and beauty and honesty. Honesty and righteousness. <laughs> the true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge. In John chapter 1, it says that Christ Jesus, the Son of God, is creator. In Colossians chapter 1, it says that Christ is creator. And in Hebrews chapter 1, it also indicates that the Son of God is creator. Lots of claims. From whom the entire cosmos sprang, all plants, animals, is the Son of God Himself. He was the agent of creation. How significant that is to the gospel. For when you have your sins forgiven and you come to Christ as Savior, you are meeting your Creator. Such a glorious truth. Ooh, pause. <laughs> yeah. If one of those, if, if the underlying claims are true, then the additional claims would be true. If Christ is the creator, and if the claims about salvation are true, and if, and if, then yeah. But none of these claims are being justified or demonstrated to be true in any way. They're just being asserted. The, I, I know I probably sound like a broken record at this point, but I kind of have to because of what's happening. And remember, this is just a normal sermon from from a, a, a seminary professor at a church like hundreds and thousands more like it that are happening every week just claim after claim after claim being made with no justification and people sitting there going yeah okay and then walking out of this feeling like they've learned something this is this is a failure of critical thinking I'm, I'm not saying this to disparage the people who are sitting in these churches. I'm just, I'm just calling it what it is. All right. And, and we're all susceptible to failures of critical thinking. All right. We all have work to do in this area. All of us. It, it, it's just, I don't watch sermons very often. <laughs> so when I'm seeing one like this and it's just claim, 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 faith, 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 claim. It's just, it's just like nails on a chalkboard because I, I care about what's true. All right, let's keep going. 
So what does it mean to worship the creation? This is what's condemned by Paul in Romans chapter 1. What does it mean to worship the creation? To worship the creation. Is that is to absolutize or give credit to some aspect of the creation. In other words, it's to give credit to your existence to some aspect of the creation. Now, evolutionists who are atheists can do this to time and chance. Their gods are time and chance. Their gods are mutation and natural selection. They give credit to their existence to those things. That is to absolutize some aspect of the creation. In doing so, you worship and serve the creature and the creation instead of God, who is wonderful forever. A quick pause. So what he's doing here, by conflating what it means for something to be a god, okay, well, their gods are this. What he's doing is he's trying to drag the skeptic. He's trying to drag the atheist. He's trying to drag the scientist down to act like the believer and the skeptic are on equal footing with regards to their beliefs and acting like, well, everybody's got a God. Our God's the real one. Their God is, their gods are time and chance and, and materialism. The word God has a meaning, Okay. If he's, if he's trying to say, well, the things that they value are this, that would be one thing, but, but everything you value isn't a God. If he's trying to say, these are the things that, that these people point to as being, you know, where they come from, that's not a God either. All right. Th th these language games that get played are, again, this is, this is a dishonest way of communicating. And, and it's, it's, it's an attempt to pretend that people who are skeptics, people who have done scientific research are on equal footing with the people who just assert based on faith what they claim to know. All right, let's keep going. Scripture says, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when we look at these facts that God has given in creation in our conscience and in Scripture, we are faced with a choice. Either we bow the knee to Christ, who is the Logos, the very rationality and origin of the universe, either we bow the knee to him and affirm the truth of what God says, or we oppose him and attempt to create a world of our own imagining, our own making. Pause. This is such an incredible oh, passage. I mean, so so there he's presented with a, a false dichotomy. Um, I would urge you to to you know look into what that fallacy is. Um, I, I just I don't want to. I'm, I'm realizing how long this is taking, and it's just you know I don't want to spend all day doing this. Frankly, um, every time he says Scripture says, every time anybody says Scripture says, what I want to plant a seed in your mind, where in the back of your head a voice, it could be any voice, it could be whatever voice you want, goes, "Who cares." All right. Scripture says, blah, 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 blah. I want just, just reflexively, who cares in the back of your head? The Quran says, who cares? The Bhagavad Gita says, who cares? The Book of Mormon says, who cares? Because until they demonstrate why you should care about what scripture says, whatever they're about to lay on the table, you can just be like, whatever. Like, I don't have any reason for believing this stuff. So, all right. Scripture says, who cares? Let's keep going. In Psalm 119, 90-91, where scripture says that Who cares? All, everything is a servant of God. All these facts that we're looking at around us here are serving God. Unsaved people will have to answer for how they handle these facts. Even 2 plus 2 will 
will condemn the unbeliever on judgment day for facts. Glorify God. But the unbeliever distorts and perverts the meaning of facts. Now, if chance is ultimate, by ultimate I mean if you drill down to the very bottom of causation as an evolutionist, and finally you're at the very bedrock of causation, and all you get is chance. If chance is at the very bottom of reality, then reality is absolutely impersonal. And you are totally determined by nature. I had spoken at an apologetics conference in St. Louis. I was flying back, and there was a gentleman from Coe College, Iowa. He just graduated. He played football for Coe College. He majored in ecology. He was my seatmate on a plane. And I said to him, uh, tell me, are you an evolutionist? He goes, well, absolutely. I said, well, you're going to visit your girlfriend here in Santa Barbara. Do you believe that all your thoughts are merely mental mutations determined by nature? And you're really not a free agent, but your mind has tricked you into thinking your thoughts have significance. It's actually your selfish genes trying to get you and your genetic material into the next generation. Do you really believe that? Because I don't. I said, you're not, you're not an evolutionist. You actually think that your thoughts have significance. You'll have discussions with your girlfriend that matter. Here, pause. It's just, it's just non sequiturs, like all over the place. It's just, it's just so crazy. I just, what I'm thinking about though right now is like, can you imagine you're just like getting on an airplane? You're some guy just graduated from college. You're going to go fly out to see your girlfriend. You know, if this guy played football. He's probably a big guy. He doesn't want to get on a plane. He's going to be crammed in there like a fucking sardine. You know, he just wants to get from point A to point B. You sit down, you're there, you got your peanuts, you got your bottle of water, your headphones, you're getting ready to watch some Netflix or whatever. And all of a sudden, <laughs> hey, are you an evolutionist? What? I'm just on a plane, man. Like, <laughs> Also, why does this never happen to me? How come I'm never the guy on a plane where I get seated next to an apologist? That would be so much fun for me. For most people, that sounds like a nightmare, but I would sincerely enjoy that. Um, but yeah, I mean, this idea, if there's no God, your thoughts have no significance. It's its just a non sequitur. Saying if your thoughts are electrical impulses in your brain, then, they're, then they don't matter. They, of course they matter. You're, you're a being with the, 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 the capacity to, to experience the world around you. So your thoughts have significance as related to your own, your own life and your own experience. All right. I mean, this is, this is obvious. All right, let's keep going. This guy just graduated from a university in college. You see, your life has no meaning without transcendentals such as you have personal value. You have meaning and dignity. You're a free moral agent. You've got the capacity to think rationally, logically. You love justice and mercy and aesthetics, truth and beauty and righteousness. You cannot get those things from chaos. You cannot get those things from disorder. You cannot get those things from some sort of explosion of hydrogen. God has put his fingerprints all over the creation. Well, just before I get into evidence against evolution, I want to sum up the cosmological argument. Here's the cosmological argument. The argument, logically, God is the maker of the universe. Whatever exists has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, both premises of the argument are true, and the conclusion is true. The universe cannot cause itself. Its cause must be beyond the space 
time universe. Its cause must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, and powerful beyond imagination. Does that sound a little bit like our transcendent God? Let's pause. The cosmological Hey, it's the cosmological argument, everybody. Um, all right. The, the way that Jay formed this argument is not uh, the strongest version of it. Um, all right. The way that it's generally presented will be that everything that begins to exist has a cause. He said everything that exists has a cause. Generally, it's everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe had a cause. And yes, that is a totally, if the premises are true, then the conclusion follows from the premises, okay? The thing is, an argument has to be both valid and sound, okay? The validity refers to the structure of the argument. It's a valid argument. Soundness refers to whether or not the premises themselves are actually, you know, true. Um, in this this is where the, the cosmological argument starts to run into uh, some hiccups, okay? Everything that begins to exist has a cause. How do we know that? The universe began to exist. Well, how do we really know that? So the universe in its current form can be traced back by us to the Big Bang, all right? Beyond that, things start to get a little shaky. We don't really know what was going on. the components that were present at the Big Bang existed already. So as far back as we can go, the universe existed. It didn't exist in its current state. Big Bang cosmology refers to how the universe in its current state came to be. Anything beyond that, we don't know. We don't know. We just don't know. We don't know if the universe began to exist in an ex nihilo from nothing state like creationists will assert, okay? Cosmologists generally will not tell you that the universe began from nothing, all right? Literally, the only people that I hear making the argument that the universe just poofed into existence are creationists, and they say it happened because God said magic words. The, the argument is not it's not sound, okay? And even if it was, we get from everything that begins to exist had a cause, the universe began to exist, the universe had a cause. The conclusion is the universe had a cause. The conclusion doesn't tell us anything about what that cause was. Once we start speculating about what the cause was or assigning attributes to the cause, we're just bullshitting at this point, okay? So when Jay starts going on about, well, the cause must be this and must be that and must be that, how do you know? How do you know? Nobody's going to challenge him here because like, can you imagine just standing up in the middle of a sermon to the, to the pastor and being like, wait a minute, how do you know? That's never going to, that's never going to happen. Um, but he's just pointing back to his Bible at this point. He's saying the, the argument ends with the universe had a cause. Well, the Bible says the cause is this, therefore that's the cause. And that's just not how logic works. Let's keep going. The argument shows it's quite reasonable to believe in God. I don't particularly follow the arguments of Thomas Aquinas and his logical defense of God's existence, 
but I appreciate that this is cited here in uh, a lecture by William Lane Craig, who's a well-known Christian apologist. All right, we're going to uh, change themes midstream here. I've given you the cosmological basis from Scripture on why God has given a very firm and binding testimony about being creator and upholder. Also, again, this has nothing to do with evolution. <laughs> this has nothing to do with evolution. The, co the cosmological argument ends with the universe had a cause. Not, the not, not there is a God and not, therefore, there's no reason to look at all the evidence that we have available to us and conclude that evolution by natural selection is how we ended up with so much biological diversity here on Earth. Okay, this is this is just it's it has nothing to do with the topic. He's about to engage more directly with the topic than he has up to this point, though. So let's let's go. Let's here we go. Now, science says some things, and scientists say some things, and scientific discoveries say some things. They're not all the same thing. Carl Sagan. You've heard of Carl Sagan? I've heard of Carl Sagan. Passed on. Carl Sagan was the poster child for evolution for quite a while, a couple of decades. He also helped get funding for SETI, S-E-T-I, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. In fact, he got a number of grants from the government to put up these arrays of towers and radio dishes to try to pull a signal out of space to see if there's life out there. There's got to be some sort of alien life form, he said. It's just too much of a casino jackpot that there's one little planet in the universe of our size, there must be a lot more life out there. And so he got a lot of grant money and these array towers put up. Finally, someone asked him the question, Carl, if an alien communicated with us, broke our language, came down to Earth and you could sit down with him, Carl, what would you say to this alien? He says, this is what I would say. Who are we? My friend, there's 66 books in God's infallible word that tell us who we are. And yet Carl would ask an alien. All right, let's pause. Instead of the God of the giving us his inscripturated words. Carl Sagan uh, wasn't a biologist. He was he was sort of an astrobiologist. Carl Sagan was a, uh, a cosmologist, a physicist, an astrophysicist who, he, he was a professor um, who, who taught astronomy primarily. Um, he was focused on what's going on off our planet, the history of the universe, how galaxies and stars and planets came to be. All right. Um, and yeah, when he was asked this question, that's what he said. He said, who, who are we? Um, we, us and the aliens. All right. <laughs> if we're here on this planet and, you know, we don't know what's going on off world. And then there's some other species that we encountered. The, the question of like, who, who are we? <laughs> are we in relation to each other? What does this have? What are the implications for the larger, uh, you know, universe and and life in other places? What is life? You know, what is the nature of you know? Who are we? It seems like an interesting question to ask. Um, you know, when you're when you're talking to other another species, how do we relate to each other? What's our history? I, I don't know. <laughs> And then to go on and be like, well, the Bible says a bunch of stuff. Um, the infallible word of God, I believe, was what Jay just said. Again, we're just we're just asserting that it's infallible without making any demonstration that's the case. And I, I you know, it's it's uh, it's just this sort of steady stream of uh, 
of unsubstantiated assertions. All right, let's keep going. Well, I thank the Lord for real science, not pseudoscience. Real science is operational science. I'm old enough that when I was in grammar school, a number of kids in my school had braces to cope with polio. They lost the ability to use a leg or both legs or an arm. Some of them had paralyzed limbs because of polio. I'm so thankful that right here in our own La Jolla is the Salk Institute. Jonas Salk discovered a vaccine to prevent polio. Thank the Lord for that. That is prevented so much suffering. See, God has given us real science to relieve suffering, to relieve toil, and to make us more efficient in the dominion mandate to rule over the works of his hands. There's a huge difference between operational science and theoretical religious philosophy that sometimes passes science. Now, just as evidence that there is not much proof, if any, for evolution, why is it that textbooks on evolution keep repeating the same ten icons of evolution year after year, even though all ten icons have been debunked? Okay, we got to pause because what he's about to do is is to to dive in um, this idea of icons of evolution, and there being ten icons of evolution that are repeated over and over in textbooks. This goes back to a book by Jonathan Wells called Icons of Evolution, um, which was, you know, published, I want to say back in the, the early 2000s, late 90s. Um, basically, the idea is that there are these 10 things that are that you, that you find in textbooks that have been debunked and that this is like the, the, the strongest evolution evidence for evolution. And that basically by textbooks continuing to have these things in them. Um, it's like evidence that the case for evolution is weak and that people who teach evolution are being dishonest and that they know that the evidence isn't that strong. Um, it's uh, Jonathan Wells is, a, is a, an intelligent design uh, advocate, a young earth creationist guy. He works with the Discovery Institute. Um, it's it's just bullshit, everything he says. <laughs> and, and uh, there's a number of resources online where you can see just his 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 stuff get just eviscerated point by point by point. Um, Jay's not going to get into all ten icons. Really, in the book, there's seven icons that are are really like propped up, and then three sort of secondary things. Um, the stuff that Jay's going to point out, I'm not going to go into a, like in depth debunking of what he's he said because it's so easy to find online that everything that he's about to say is wrong. Um, but I will touch on some of it. All right, let's keep going. School moms, and you buy a textbook on biology so you can keep up with state standards as you educate your kids. You're going to see the icons of evolution in that textbook, even though they've been debunked. How about Darwin's Peaks? Darwin went to the Galapagos Islands, and what did he see? On some islands, these finches have robust big beaks to crack hard seeds. On other islands, he saw that the, that the finches had smaller beaks. And he concluded, wow, this finch is becoming another kind of creature altogether. It's adapting itself for a different climate. See, that's one of the neat things about the Galapagos Islands. You've got right, wet islands, dry islands, warm islands. So, cool really fast. Darwin and his, his, his finches and the differences in shapes of the beaks are used as examples of adaptation of how different animals, because of you know the, the attributes that they have, 
will thrive in different environments, not different climates, but different different environments where there's different food sources, where the trees are different. Where So it's it's just a piece of the larger puzzle of evolution. It's like, man, look at the beaks on these birds. Over here, you see that based on what, what they've got going on in their environment, their beaks are shaped like this. Over here, these birds whose environment is a little bit different, their beaks are shaped a little bit different. Isn't that interesting how animals will adapt to their environments? That's it. It's just a piece of the puzzle. It's not the big slam dunk. Boom. Evolution is true. Cause look at these beaks, motherfuckers. It's not like that. <laughs> so let's keep going. He said, this is a practical laboratory of evolution. So he parked his boat, the USS uh, HMS Bounty. He parked his boat there and studied it. That, that's not the name of his boat. But what did we find out in science later? The beagle. That this change to a robust beak was a temporary change based upon climate and diet. And once the birds went back to normal rainfall, the next few generations of finches had the same size beak. This was not evolution. It did not prove any evolutionary mechanism at all. How about peppered moths? You'll see that one in your textbook as well. That's a debunked evolutionary icon. Supposedly, uh, when the Industrial Revolution hit Europe, the soot from the coal that was burned made the trees black, that's true. And as these trees became very dark, uh, suddenly there was an increase in the population of dark phase peppered moths, and the lighter phase peppered moths began to be more rare. So evolution is so hungry for proof, said, here we go. This was an adaptation. This is an evolutionary change. It's not an adaptation. Pause! This is, he's got to like lie about it to, to try to make his point. That's not adaptation. That's selection. So you've got, <laughs> you've got the trees are darker. Moths that are darker and kind of blend in with the trees are less easy for predators to spot. Lighter moths, the predators can see them. So they get them, they eat them. And now... Darker moths, their population goes up. Lighter moths, their population goes down. That's that's just selection. So like how the finches, we're talking about adaptation. Here we're talking about how an outside force of natural selection impacts which populations here are able to pass along their genes to their offspring and then and then keep 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 rolling as evolution does. That's all that it is. That's it. So let's let's keep going. But I gotta ask you a question. You live in Arizona, and somebody said, We're now protecting bobcats, but we'll give you $150 if you shoot a cougar. You come back a year later, and the cougar population is down to nothing, and the bobcat population is huge. Is that evolution? No. And neither was this evolution. It was simply a shift in population. The dark colored moths became hard to see, they're on the soot. The light colored moths were easy to see. How could you label a population shift evolution? It's absurd. It's what evolution is. There's a coastal it's in Japan. And uh, people actually go there with a net and they catch a crab to cook for dinner. But every time they find a crab with a pattern on his back, it looks like a samurai helmet. They throw it back for good luck. Now, if that's been happening for over 150 years, would you expect crabs with a lot with samurai helmets on the back? Yeah. Yes! That's not evolution. That's selecting out helmet crabs, putting them back into the, into the population, and of course that's going to be dominant after a while. This is the same way that you get a dachshund from the same stock as a Doberman Pinscher originally. You isolate the ones with short legs until finally that characteristic is the genetic response you want. How about fruit flies? There was a fruit fly that uh, 
have four wings, but actually fruit flies have two wings. And fruit flies can produce a generation just within hours. So it was a perfect thing to experiment on, evolution said. So we're going to bombard these fruit flies with radiation, hopefully getting some mutations and maybe producing another kind of creature. Sure enough, a fruit fly hatched with four wings. Only the, only the front two had muscles that could make it fly. The, left, the back two were just hanging on it and hanging down. Was that becoming a new creature? Was a four-winged fruit fly an improvement? Not really. That animal only would live a couple hours because these wings were hanging on the back. It couldn't even function properly, eat or drink. It would be like tying two extra wings on the back of a 747 to hung down. Would it improve flight? No. It's not even a new kind of plane. And I can just show you all of these particular icons of evolution have been debunked by science. So you ask the question, why would they keep appearing in evolution books? Because there's such an absence of proof. These evolutionists are going back to things that used to be used as proof, and then they put them in there as if there's something credible about them. Now you've cool. probably heard of Heckel's drawings. Just lies. Uh, Heckel actually was a contemporary of Darwin. And Heckel uh, drew these drawings, and Darwin said, I think he's right. Ontogeny does recapitulate phylogeny. This is the best proof of evolution we've seen to date. Question mark. What is ontogeny? That's body type, body formation, body design. What's phylogeny? That's the particular branch or phyla or kind of creature you are. And so what Heckel said was, during the development of the fetus, from embryo, zygote, embryo, fetus, that little embryo goes through all the stages of its evolutionary past. It looks like the fetus of a bird, reptile, turtle, amphibian. It goes all the way and it finally shows that it's uh, a mammal and a human. There's only one problem. This has been debunked, and it was also shown that Heckel fudged on his drawings. He reworked the drawings and cheated on them to make it look like we passed through all the stages of an ancestral phylum in our development into a fetus. All right, so let's pause real fast. Does it still appear in evolutionary books? still appears as if it's a Generally speaking, when you see Heckel's embryo drawings in biology textbooks, this was the case when I took biology in college. What they're in there more because they're historically significant than they're used as like an example of something that biologists would look at today as being accurate. All right. Nobody in the world of biology for like a hundred years looks at Heckel's embryos and is like, this is, this is strong evidence for evolution. Nobody, nobody. All right. But <laughs> you'll still see the drawings in there generally in, in sections of the textbooks that talk about like the history of our understanding of biology. Um, the idea that, that Heckel's embryo drawings are like foundational to the theory of evolution or that by Heckel's drawings being, you know, not accurate in terms of our understanding of, of the development of, of the, the diversity of biology here in, in, in the world, um, that, that by, by knocking down Heckel, that the, the whole house of evolution crumbles. This is bullshit. So that is all I've got to say about that. You you can you can look at this. You can also like like please just just look at at look at look at Jonathan Wells and the icons of evolution. Look at what legitimate scientists have had to say about this stuff. 
Um, even scientists that 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 Wells cites in his book have written rebuttals saying this dishonest guy misrepresented our research, our work, quoted us out of context, has twisted our work to try to to represent it as something that it isn't. This is this is not good work. Let's keep going. Well, how about the fossil record? How about it? Fossil record is the record of paleontology. When we find fossils, as Ken Ham says, all over the earth, there's billions of dead things buried in waterborne sediment. All over the earth. Does that argue for the story of life or a universal flood? Well, we believe it argues for a universal flood. We don't believe it's the story of life. And so the fossil record is very bankrupt. In fact, Darwin said this, what will disprove my theory is if there is not a smooth continuum between types of animals in the fossil record. What will disprove my theory is if there's no gradualism. And Darwin made a prediction. He said, in years to come, you're going to find a complete graduation of, of all the intermediate, intermediate forms between animals in the fossil record. Well, he was wrong about that. In fact, starting in 1980, the convention of, of macro Evolutionary paleontologists made an announcement scientists that did not want to hear. They said, look, we've been digging fossils here for over a hundred years, and all we find is systematic gaps and no intermediate forms and no smooth continuous and, and no smooth continuum and no smooth gradualism. All right, so pause. So dear friends, uh, what changes did he referenced um, this this group of paleontologists in 1980 releasing a statement, this, this uh, society of macro evolution paleontologist people. Um, I Googled this because I wanted to try to find the source for it and uh, couldn't find anything um, at all uh, to, to, to source that to. Um, let's say just for the sake of being charitable, that what Jay just said is true, that some group of paleontologists in 1980 came out with some statement saying that they found the fossil record to be lacking in some way. Um, okay. Uh, what I did was I looked up the paleontological society it used to be the, the, uh, paleontological society of America. It's an international organization that's devoted to the promotion of paleontology. It is, uh, they've got a ton of, of resources online you can look at. Um, so this is sort of the, the premier organization that you'll find professional paleontologists, um, pointing to for people who want to learn about paleontology. Um, they issued a statement about evolution, and this is probably going to be the longest pause because I'm going to read directly from their website, the paleontological society's statement on evolution. Here we go. Evolution is both a scientific fact and a scientific theory. Evolution is a fact in the sense that life has changed through time. In nature today, the characteristics of species are changing and new species are arising. The fossil record is the primary factual evidence for evolution. Let me read that one more time. The fossil record is the primary factual evidence for evolution in times past, and evolution is well documented by further evidence from other scientific disciplines, including comparative anatomy, biogeography, genetics, molecular biology, and studies of viral and bacterial diseases. Evolution is also a theory, an explanation for the observed changes in life through Earth history that has been tested numerous times and repeatedly confirmed. 
Evolution is an elegant theory that explains the history of life through geologic time, the diversity of living organisms, including their genetic, molecular, and physical similarities and differences, and the geographic distribution of organisms. Evolutionary principles are the foundation of all basic and applied biology and paleontology, from biodiversity studies to studies on the control of emerging diseases. Because evolution is fundamental to understanding both living and extinct organisms, it must be taught in public school science classes. In contrast, creationism is religion rather than science, as ruled by the Supreme Court, because it invokes supernatural explanations that cannot be tested. Consequently, creationism in any form, including scientific creationism, creation science, and intelligent design must be excluded from public school science classes because science involves testing hypotheses, scientific explanations are restricted to natural causes. This difference between science and religion does not mean the two fields are incompatible. Many scientists who study evolution are religious and many religious denominations have issued statements supporting evolution. Science and religion address different questions and employ different ways of knowing. The evolution paradigm has withstood nearly 150 years of scrutiny. Although the existence of evolution has been confirmed many times as a science, evolutionary theory must continue to be open to testing. At this time, however, more fruitful inquiries address the tempo and mode of evolution, various processes involved in evolution, and driving factors for evolution. Through such inquiry, the unifying theory of evolution will become an even more powerful explanation for the history of life on Earth. End quote. I disagree with the part about science and religion addressing different uh, ways of knowing. I already talked about that. Faith is, is not a way of knowing. Um, it's a way of asserting without knowing. Um, but look, that's the statement from paleontologists. Okay. What Jay is doing here, acting like there are gaps in the fossil record that he can then shove his God into as an explanation for biological diversity on our planet is bullshit. It's bullshit. I urge you, if you're a believer, to go look at the Paleontological Society's website. The idea that there is not an overwhelming consensus among professionals in this field supporting evolution based on so much evidence is nonsense. It's dishonest. Okay? So, I just... <laughs> I really wanted you guys to see this because the idea that this is just like, you know, oh, well, they're just suppressing the truth. It's bullshit. It's bullshit. All right. Let's keep going. The fossil record does not undergird the evolutionary theory at all. Bullshit. Yet, we'll see the tree of life put in evolutionary books as if every living thing is traceable to a single cell ancestor. This is still put in evolutionary books, though the fossil record does not support this at all. Bullshit. There is no continuum of going to be life forms in the evolutionary tree of life. Bullshit. Now, this neck bone with the spinal cord preserved was a mosasaur. In fact, you can see these swimming mosasaurs here depicted by an artist. One of their favorite foods was an ammonite. An ammonite was a snail-like creature that lived in a shell as big as a trunk tire. Some of these actually saw a fossil one in Utah at Auburn University that was this hot, this big around, incredible. So these things swam around in warm, shallow seas and were fed upon 
by Mosasaurus. And this fossil was taken in Middle America, right around northern Utah. So if the only mechanism that the evolutionist has to produce greater, more sophisticated creatures, new kinds of animals, an upward movement from simple forms to complex forms, if all they have is mutation and natural selection, the question becomes, what about a mutation being useful? I took my wife uh, for a little outing to the San Diego Zoo a few weeks ago, and uh, one of the zookeepers there had gotten her degree in zoology and evolution. And I said, well, I'm curious. Can you name a positive mutation? And she goes, wow, I'd have, to, I'd have to think about it. I said, well, this is the main mechanism of evolution. Can you name a positive mutation? She says, I can't. I can't name a positive mutation. Pause. I said, well, that's interesting because... Again, we have this sort of like street ambush of a person who's not here in the in the room to defend themselves, just hearsay, right? I was talking to somebody at the zoo and they, you know, okay. Let's talk about positive mutations. Um, the idea in evolution of, of, a, of a mutation being positive is it's related to an, a, a, an organism's ability to continue to, you know, live within its environment and pass on its genes, okay? So if you have a, a trait that allows an organism to survive in its, its environment and pass on its genes, it's, it's, it's positive mutations, right? So I think that maybe the easiest way to, to look at this right now, just like off the top of my freaking head in, in context of the, the moment and the world that we're living in is to talk about viruses. Okay. Um, you, you've probably heard of viruses mutating and being then resistant to antibiotics and that people who manufacture vaccines People who manufacture drugs, like researchers at the Salk Institute that, that uh, Jay referred to, um, are constantly having to keep up with mutations allowing these tiny organisms to continue to survive and, and, and pass on, you know, their, their little genes there, right? Um, th that's like a, a really sort of rudimentary example of, of positive mutations, right? Allowing anything that allows an organism to, to continue surviving. That, that's it. That's a positive mutation. Um, the, the idea that there are no positive mutations is ridiculous. Um, and, and just like, I, I just want to, I just want to like tell everybody, like, like, look it up, like, like actually read a biology textbook. The, 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 the people who sit in the pews, they, they, they will hear the, someone like Jay just disparage the work of researchers and make all of these unsubstantiated claims. I, how many people actually walk out of this and are like, okay, I'm going to go get a biology book and, and check it out. Like, like that's that, that was never my response when I was sitting in church, listening to an authority figure telling me what was true. Okay. Please, please, please. If, if you are listening to this, and you don't have any any background in, in studying evolution, there are a number of great resources out there. You can go look at the, the Talk Origins websites. You can look at what um, uh, there's, uh, Berkeley has, has incredible resources online talking about biology and talking about evolution and providing sort of a ground level, um, 
window into into under, beginning to understand uh, the concepts here. Um, because the way that it's represented from the pulpit, like like what we're seeing here, um, it is it's just like never accurate. So let's let's keep going. Evolutionary theory depends upon positive mutations. There's one great problem. When it comes to mutations, it's not like going to Home Depot and you pick out the parts you want. Now, whatever's going to become an elephant needs a trunk. It needs a 9 to 12 foot piece of tissue. Now, suppose a mutation happened that gave him a 9 foot piece of tissue hanging from his face. That's still not a trunk. He needs a nasal passageway that goes all the way to the end. He needs tens of thousands of muscles controlled by tens of thousands of nerves that link to his brain. He needs an epidermis. He needs a vascular system of blood. He needs a venous system. He needs a lymph system. All these things must happen at once or that trunk does nothing. So quick pause. Anybody who who knows anything about evolution and about gradual changes over time listening to this is going to be going this is an absurd straw man that he's constructed here misrepresenting evolution to people who don't know that that what he's saying is is wrong um he's he's setting the stage to talk about Michael Behe and irreducible complexity. This idea in the world of creationism and intelligent design where people will talk about how there are certain features of animals that are so complex that they couldn't possibly have come about through natural means, they had to have been designed. Um, this is a way of sort of satiating people who don't know anything about evolution. So if you look at something, the big one that always gets talked about is the eye. If, you, if you're a person who doesn't know anything about evolution and you look at the eye and you go, well, that's something that seems to me as a person who doesn't know what I'm talking about, seems to be very complex. Um, how could that have been, you know, the process of natural <laughs> process, the result of natural processes? I guess it couldn't be. Therefore, God, that's the argument. Okay, with with irreducible complexity, it, this idea, it's like, look at that elephant's trunk. That's crazy. How could that have come to be? I don't know. I guess, therefore, God must have made it. This is this is not. I mean, in in when when you hear people talking about this stuff in the sort of online skeptic atheist community, it's people talk about God of the gaps. People talk about arguments from ignorance, arguments from incredulity. It it all sort of boils down to the same thing. When there's a gap in our knowledge, when we don't understand something, there's a couple different ways you can respond to that. You can go, I don't understand this. Or you can go, I don't understand this. Therefore, God did it. Okay, now I understand it. I understand that God did it. There is no difference in understanding there. There's only a difference in the honesty of how the people are approaching the thing they don't understand. When you run up against something and it's like, well, how did that happen? You're like, I don't know. That's it. That's the finish line. I don't know. From I don't know, you can then go to, you know, that's where the, the investigation begins. The problem with the way of thinking that Jay is is is, is endorsing here is you run up to, into I don't know and you go, okay, I don't know, therefore God. 
And this is dishonest. This is a way of substituting faith for knowledge, but then sort of still feeling like you have knowledge. It's attractive. It's a, it's a whole hell of a lot easier than actually doing research and doing work and learning things to just be like, I don't know how our eyes can do what they do. God created it this way. This is not, this is not an honest way of, of interacting with reality. Okay. So it's, it's a trap. And, and the, the, the attractive thing with, with these arguments from design are, are, are exactly what I'm talking about. It's, it's this ability to assert knowledge without having to actually have knowledge. Let's keep going. See, mutations cannot anticipate what is needed for an animal to evolve. They can't anticipate, there's no foresight. It's That's blind true. chance, absolutely blind chance. You can't go to the mutation store and buy yourself a trunk. Straw man. There's no foresight in mutation. Plus that they're not beneficial. If they're detrimental, there's no evolution. The creature is disabled. If they're neutral, there's no change. There's no evolution. If they're beneficial, it must add information. It must add so much information that there's a change in the creature, a change in species, a change in body type. Do we see that in the fossil record? Or do not? Yes. Yes, we do. <laughs> That's exactly what we see. Now, the geologic column, supposedly the record of life is in sedimentary rock and layers of rock. One of the places that uh, the geologic column is seen in its greatest completeness is the Grand Canyon. There's still three major epochs missing in Grand Canyon rock. <coughs> but we don't see the geologic column anywhere on Earth in its completeness. Now, that just shows the dates of uh, how much evolution uh, basically believes each of these strata is accountable for in terms of time. Um, we've all seen the movie Jurassic Park, right? You can see where the Jurassic Age is between Triassic and uh, Cretaceous there. Evolution, <laughs> evolution does not this address- This is a record of life. Evolution doesn't address the geological column, okay? There's, there's a whole separate field of science called geology that would be addressing, you know, the, the geology. If you wanted to know about layers of rock and how old they are, you would talk to a geologist. If you wanted to talk about the diversity of life on earth and how we got here, you would talk to a biologist and the biologist is going to point to you to, to, to evolution. Okay. Cause it's, it's, it's what we know. Um, so again, again, and again, and again, the, the, the question on the table, does evolution disprove the Bible? That's what this is all supposed to be about. And instead of addressing this question, it's just a lot of bullshit, a lot of speech intended to persuade without regard for the truth. Let's keep going. Or a record of destruction. Billions of dead things buried in waterborne sediment all over the earth. Is that a record of life or a record of judgment? We believe, according to scripture, that it is a record of judgment. Scripture says this flood was universal. Who cares? Everything with breath perished except what was preserved on the ark. We believe that the Genesis flood is what produced all this death. As an example, uh, one of my peers when I was working for Institute of Creation Research as an artist was Dr. Steve Austin. Now, Dr. Steve Austin would publish articles in our Acts and Facts. We had to use a pen name. He couldn't use his real name or Penn State never would have given him his graduate degree. 
And so he published his articles under the pen name of Stuart Nivens. Well, Steve Austin finally graduated with a degree in coal. They gave him his, they gave him his uh, sheepskin, his diploma, he walked, and then he revealed he'd been writing these articles. Oh my goodness, how could he write that? Steve went on to distinguish himself as a world-class geologist. In fact, the- No, he did not. Canadian Association of Geologists invited him to speak on the origin of coal, since that was his major at Penn State. And here he was somewhere in Saskatchewan lecturing, and he said, when you mow your lawn in the summer, and there's a downpour overnight, you come out in the morning, what do you see? You see woven mats of clipped grass. He goes, that's how coal was formed. There was a flood, it ripped up all this vegetation. That vegetation became waterlogged. It became what is known as peat. It sank to the bottom and was covered by subsequent layers of sediment. And under that pressure, it was carbonized into coal. Now, what did these evolutionists tell him? That's incredible. Would you come back next year? They actually said, come back. We want to hear this again. Because we've been taught since we were this high that coal is formed in position. In a swamp where things slowly died, were buried and rotted in situ. We've never heard the rafting theory of peat. We want to hear it again. Then, then Steve Austin went to Mount St. Helens, the lake, Spirit Lake, right below that volcano. And he put on his diving gear, he went with some professional divers. And what did they discover? Thousands and thousands of trees, waterlogged, floating vertically, about to sink to the bottom because of the sediment. All happening within a year. Phenomenal. Dr. Steve Austin takes frequent trips down the Grand Canyon, and one of the fossils he points out is called a nautiloid. How many have heard of a chambered nautilus? All right, quick pause. Oh, most of you have. Chambered nautilus. I would encourage anybody watching this to, if you haven't already, so there's. There's sort of a a tree of life, if you will, of the creationist movement in the United States, this pseudoscientific, anti-science, frankly, movement. Um, when I was a kid, I lived in San Diego, and the ICR, the Institute for Creation Research, was not far from where I grew up uh, in, in Santee, California. All right. When I was a kid, I attended classes and workshops at the ICR because my uh, my parents thought that me learning young earth creationism was was a good thing. Um, when I was there as a little kid, you'd interact with people like Henry Morris, Dwayne Gish. Um, Dwayne Gish is, is most known now um, as being sort of the the, the namesake of a, of a technique in debates called the Gish Gallop, because what Dwayne would do in debates uh, was he would lay out just like claim after claim after claim after claim after claim in his like opening statement, knowing that the time that it would take for his interlocutor to refute those claims, basically <laughs> it would take too long. He wouldn't be able to do it. And then it, it, it takes a lot longer. If someone, if someone lies about something, it often takes longer to explain why something is a lie than it is to just blurt out a lie. Um, so Gish would just <laughs> would just sort of like carpet bomb the 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 room with a bunch of bullshit claims 
knowing that whatever reputable scientist he was talking to wouldn't be able to address all of them given the time constraints of a debate. It's a debate tactic that's extremely dishonest. It's known as the Gish Gallop. You just gallop from claim to claim to claim knowing that you're you're going to get away with it because of the constraints of the format. So yeah, Henry Morris, Dwayne Gish, Ken Ham, who uh, Jay referred to, was at ICR when I was a kid before uh, Ken left to, to start Answers in Genesis. Um, look look up this, this, this group, ICR. Um, look at what reputable scientists have had to say about this place and what ICR is and what it does as an ideologically driven organization that's purpose is to promote young earth creationism. Um, you will find that stone cold Steve Austin has said more intelligent things about geology <laughs> than the doctor Steve Austin that, uh, that Jay's referring to. Um, he's about to talk about nautiloids. Um, these, these little, they're like, they're like snails, um, that were existed a long, long time ago. Um, in the Grand Canyon, there are places where you can find, um, just tons of, of nautiloid shells, uh, buried in the, in the rock out there. Um, there's this thing called continental drift plate tectonics, you know, parts of the earth that are now deserts used to be under the ocean. Um, Parts of the earth that are now mountains used to not be, you know, the, the, the world has moved around over time. Um, and yeah, so you'll find preserved uh, fossils of, 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 of organisms that would have lived in the sea um, out in what is now the desert because it wasn't always the desert. Um, all right, let's keep going. Oh, this is an incredible shell creature. It looks like a squid that lives in a shell. It's got the ability to compress air. It floats to the top at 90 feet of the ocean, compress that and go to the bottom again. It controls its, its depth, its fathom, so perfectly with this compression. In fact, uh, submarines are kind of based upon that, that ability to compress or expand gas, and that's how submarines choose their depth in the water, just like that chamber nautilus. Well, there's a close relative of the chamber nautilus called the nautiloid. It's the same squid-like creature with tentacles and a siphon, jet bill. But instead of a circular uh, shell, it's a long ice cream cone shaped shell and it's really jet in water. And so Steve Austin was showing people on a raft as they're going down the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon. Here's an alloy fossil right at the right level of the, of the river. Here's another one, all these are incredible. And he did some research. He said, I'm gonna follow that same sandstone layer out into the desert. And he found an area packed with nautiloid fossils. And he wrote a paper on it. Now, at first, the evolutionists thought he made it up. They could not wait to discredit Dr. Austin. The nameless, faceless evolutionists. realized this guy found the nautiloids. How did he do it? So finally, the reigning expert on nautiloids, who's an evolutionist, approached Dr. Austin and said, Dr. Austin, I'm now going to give you the mantle being an expert on nautiloids, I'm going to pass that mantle on to you. How did you find these nautiloids? This is nonsense. He says, well, you evolutionists believe that the fossil record is the story of life. I believe it's a story of universal judgment by water. Therefore, nautiloid fossils are not the record of life, they're the record of kill zone. And I followed the sandstone layer out into the desert over 80 miles away to a kill zone of fossil nautiloids. 
Got the mantle. There it is. See, so Steve Austin believed in the Bible teaching catastrophism, not what we call uniformitarianism, where millions of years these layers are slowly built up and this is the story of life. Not so. So see that purple right there? That's called the Cambrian layer. As far as we know in geology, that is one of the deepest layers in the fossil record. Underneath that is what's called pre-Cambrian. So when you read books by creation geologists, they will tell you we believe that Cambrian on up is probably post-flood or flood strata, the rock record and strata since the flood. Pre-Cambrian would be creation rock. The rock that was already there at creation. So this leads to another fascinating area that, that really refutes evolution. We call it the Cambrian explosion. The Cambrian explosion. Think with me through this for a moment. That layer, that purple layer on my chart, represents the lowest layer in the fossil record. Anything below that is pretty much sanitary, we don't find fossils in it. The Cambrian explosion is not just a case of all the major animal phyla appearing at once, at the same time, the geologic column. It's also a situation of no ancestors to suggest that the Cambrian explosion is absolutely baffling to evolutionary theory. Where are the thousands of observable intermediates? They're nowhere to be found. And so there's no intermediate forms between a jellyfish and an animal that has a spine, a fish, a cordata. There's no intermediates. This is Where are the intermediates? That's, it's not true. So when we look at this Cambrian explosion, The actual data shows all these phyla. So the light blue cones, there would be all these phyla that don't have any relatives in between or any ancestors below. And so what evolutionists do, they superimpose the tree of life underneath when there's no data to support it. They superimpose it. See, in the Cambrian explosion, there is a, there's a massive explosion of body plants. These creatures all have different shaped bodies because they're in different phyla. So we could actually say it this way. That's the tree of life that they patch in below the Cambrian layer. It's all fictitious, there's no data. So everything below that blue line is simply made up. Everything above that line are the phyla that suddenly appear in the Cambrian layer. This is a death blow to paleontology if, they, if they're trying to support evolution from the fossil record. All right, quick pause. I Listen, I'm not a paleontologist and neither is Jay. Please, please, if you're watching this, just go look at what paleontologists have to say about this, okay? I mean, look, the <laughs> fossilization, um, when you talk about all of the organisms that have lived and died in the history of, of our planet, um, fossilization is, is a rare thing, all right? Most fossils don't survive, uh, you know, erosion. Most fossils don't, don't last long enough to be observed. So yeah, the fossil record um, is imperfect. Um, <laughs> but look at what the paleontologists have to say about it, okay? Um, there are tens of thousands of, of fossil specimens that have been collected from the Cambrian explosion. What Jay is saying is just simply not true. And he is relying on the ignorance of his audience to get away with it. 
let's keep going. <clears throat> now, a group of scientists were asked this question, do you think it's possible to design a navigation device, all-weather navigation device, smaller than the head of a pen, that could produce a 5,000-mile round trip without failure and cause whatever is traveling to land on a spot smaller than a football field? Is it impossible? Well, God has already done it, the monarch butterfly. There are monarch butterflies that hatch in Ontario, Canada, having never seen their parents, just a gelatinous green egg laid on the underside of milkweed, it becomes a little caterpillar, it finally hatches, eats the milkweed plant, and takes flight. And where is it going? It's going to a redwood forest in the mountains above Monterey, Mexico. 2,500 miles away. Now some of these monarch butterflies are labeled with a tag. It's a little paper tag with a number. And some of these monarch butterflies have landed on the same tree as the parent they never met 2,500 miles away. All right, quick pause. That's bullshit. That's just not true. That's <laughs> that, that's just that's just not true. Uh, so the deal with with monarch migration. All right, and I'm no expert on this, but I know enough to know that what Jay just said was bullshit. The ones that migrate south live a lot longer than the ones that migrate north. All right, look this up. Okay, you'll see that the ones that migrate north that there are usually several life cycles of butterflies living and dying get on their way to get back up north. Okay. So the idea that like some butterfly is going to lay an egg on a tree and then that exact butterfly's baby is going to land on, on that tree again is, is, is nonsense. Okay. Um, again, what Jay is doing is, is saying to an audience that people in the, in the audience probably haven't read the national geographic article that I read years ago about monarch butterflies to just know the, <laughs> that little tidbit, but like, He's relying on, on them being ignorant about this and saying, you don't understand how it is that monarch butterfly migration works and how butterflies from Canada can go to the same forest that their ancestors went to. Therefore, God designed it this way. This is dishonest again. All right. It's the same. It's the same tactic of just being like an audience that's like, you know, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know about monarch butterfly migration. And then being told by an authority figure, oh, it's it's design. And then being like, okay, it's design. That's it. That's that's the game being played here. All right, let's keep going. We're almost done. I promise we're getting there. Amazing. One of the things we use in defending our faith <clears throat> against skepticism, agnosticism, is what is called the wedge of truth. The wedge of truth wonderfully streamlines the debate between naturalism, that's where all you have is chance, all you have is randomness. Remember, a creature that needs, let's say a peacock, a peacock needs a beautiful tail and incredible feathers. First time I saw a peacock feathers and blue I go, look at that thing, I'm like looking into, the, into eternity, look at that blue and turquoise, this is amazing. A peacock needs a beautiful set of tail feathers to woo its mate. They can't go to the parts store and get a peacock tail. If evolution were true, he would have to wait around until mistakes in DNA 
perfectly produced, beautifully designed, turquoise, blue, and purplish tail. Now, here comes the irreducible complexity. So one of the ways we streamline the debate is by the concept of beautifully designed. Beautifully designed. How wonderful are God's works. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. God's fingerprints of design are everywhere in creation. Blind, purposeless chance cannot account for order. Design, logic, intelligence, personhood, meaning, morals, rationality. See, Darwin said things really, really look designed, but they're not. They really, really look designed, but they're not. So, Darwin, how do you go about preparing a proof that things that look designed are not designed? This is why evolution leads people down a path of agnosticism and atheism. Because Darwin is trying to prove that what looks designed is not designed. That's, that's not true. So we use the wedge of truth to make our friends admit that what science says and what scientists say are not always the same thing. <coughs> Did you know that the, that the founders of modern science Newton, Boyle, Kepler, Morey, Pascal, all these founders of modern science believe in God. In fact, they believe that they were thinking God's thoughts after him when they discovered things in the scientific method. They believe that God gave us the gift of science to better fulfill the dominion mandate over the works of God's hands, as it says in Psalm 8. And so if you went to take a science class at <clears throat> USC in 1940, you wouldn't be studying these things on the left, <clears throat> because prior to 1940, the only science classes you could take in university were operational science classes, medicine, <coughs> engineering, physics. You can only take courses in operational science that enhance our ability to manage the works of God's hands. Religious theory is a later addition. And so be careful when someone says, science says, be careful when you hear that. Drive the wedge, my friends. Drive the wedge between operational science and religious philosophy because there's a huge difference. Pause. I always make my friends. So, yeah, you may, you may have noticed that he keeps using this term operational science. Um, this is a term that's been coined by the, the creationist intelligent design crowd. Um, they pretend that there's a difference between operational science and I've heard Ken Ham refer to it as, as historical science. Here, Jay is, is sort of saying that the distinctions between operational science and religious philosophy. Um, <laughs> the idea, it, 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 it's, it's a made up thing. Um, and notice that he hasn't defined what what he means by operational science. Um, during the debate that Ken Ham did with Bill Nye, um, he, he talks about this, this idea that there's like stuff that you can observe and test directly and stuff that you can't. Um, I would, I would encourage anybody to go watch that debate if you can stomach it and, and listen to what Bill Nye has to say about how this is a, just a, a bogus, uh, made up distinction here. Um, now what Jay said to anybody, if you hear someone say science says that you should not just immediately accept that, that you should ask lots of questions. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Science says it, that same voice, it's like, who cares? Embrace it. Ask the questions. Look for the evidence. Be a skeptic. This is a, you know, a approaching claims with the desire to have, you know, someone present you with evidence before you're going to accept a claim as being true. That's everything we're trying to promote here with this channel. That's it. 
Um, a minute ago, going back, he said that Darwin set out to prove, you know, basically that there's uh, natural things happening without the assistance of a god. That's bullshit. That's garbage. Darwin and and scientists in the in the tradition and the spirit of the scientific method are are attempting to follow the evidence where it leads. That's it. They're trying to understand the natural world. That's it. All right, let's keep going. Friends qualify statement. You say science says. Who cares? See, people start with the presupposition. Now, Stephen Hawking, his wonderful, incredible mind, he was roaming through the universe with his mind, talking to us about black holes and quasars. And it was fascinating to listen to him. But he started with a premise. He started with the premise that the universe made itself, no God was needed. And then no, we, he did not. By our that reason, is a lie. And figure out the universe, give enough time and enough smart people collaborating together, we can figure out what's really going on. He started with a premise. Shouldn't have to lie no to make your point. The way you gather data, the way you correlate data, and the way you conclude from that data will lead you to your dogma. Your data will lead you to your dogma. Because you can't gather data, you can't bring that data together and make conclusions without a universal belief system. You just can't do it. That's not really true. Well, the truth claims of Christianity speak about all reality. All reality. The cosmos, origins, nature, history, sex, gender. Speaks about all reality. It's therefore unfair to relegate Christianity's truth to an upper story or non-cognitive or subjective realm. It's unfair because God talks about all reality in his word. Now, Michael B. has been uh, referred to as one of the men who kind of summarized God's design as irreducible complexity. Sometimes we call it intelligent design. So Michael B. basically, writing about this, said, God's fingerprints are everywhere in the creation. He's given evidence that there are countless structures that could not exist if all the parts didn't come into existence at once. What a beautiful picture that is of creation. How many parts does a mousetrap have? Eight parts? A bale, a spring, a bait holder, a wood block, couple other parts. If any one of those parts is missing, it doesn't catch mice, does it? It cannot catch mice. Now, suppose we compared that mousetrap to something evolving. What in the world would happen if that mousetrap is trying to sustain its existence when it only has two parts, three parts, seven parts, even one part short of eight, it's still not going to catch mice. All right, quick pause. It's a great picture. Two of- things. <laughs> One, on Michael Behe, all I'm going to say, I, I pulled up a quote I'm going to read to you guys, but um, Michael Behe is a, a professor at uh, Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. Um, his own department where he works, he's a tenured professor, his own department where he works has issued a statement saying, we as a department here, we this is a biology department, we understand that evolution is a fact, and we don't endorse any of that guy's shit, but he works here. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, but you can find that statement if you look it up. Um, 
Dehe wrote this, uh, Behe wrote this book, Darwin's Black Box, which has been just picked apart by scientists. Uh, you can you can look at that as well on your own. Um, but what I want to draw attention to, Behe's a very interesting character because Behe was brought in as a witness for the defense in a trial of Kitzmiller versus the Dover Area School District, where the idea of whether or not intelligent design should be taught in schools was actually brought before the court. Spoiler alert, it didn't go well for the intelligent design people. While under oath, as a witness for the defense, Behe was asked a number of questions where he gave testimony under oath. Let me just read the quote. Quote, there are no peer-reviewed articles by anyone advocating for intelligent design supported by pertinent experiments or calculations which provide detailed rigorous accounts of how intelligent design of any biological system occurred. That's pretty bad. Um, when asked about astrology and whether astrology and intelligent design, not astronomy, astrology are on equal footing. He said, under my definition, this is a quote, under my definition, a scientific theory is a proposed explanation which focuses or points to physical observable data and logical inferences. There are many things throughout the history of science which we now think to be incorrect, which nonetheless would fit that definition. Yes, astrology is in fact one and so is the other theory of the propagation of light and many other theories as well. When you, it, I mean, go, I would urge anybody to go look at this trial, Kitzmiller versus Dover Area School District. Um, and you can, you can read the full transcript of his testimony where under oath, this guy admits that what he sells to Christians, what he sells in his book, what he goes around the country telling people isn't science. Okay. So. Anything citing Michael Behe, you you can. There are abundant resources pointing to how everything that this guy says is 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 bullshit. All right, let's keep going. Of what happens in biology, there's a particular microbe that has parts that look for the world like an electric motor. Imagine a flagella, a curved flagella. <clears throat> They can operate at high RPM, go up to full RPMs in less than a tenth of a second. Stop, reverse directions in a tenth of a second. Then all the parts you see on the electric motor are there. An L-ring, a proximal rod, a P-ring, a rotor, a stator, a switch. This is all in a microorganism. And the question is, how could this come into existence by trial and error, one part at a time? All it would do is kill the organism. If the organism had a big, long flagella hanging from it that couldn't propel it locomotion, it dies. If it's got all these inward parts, and those inward parts are using um, metabolic energy and doesn't do anything, it dies. If half the parts are there, it dies. If 19 out of 20 parts are there, it dies. I just want you to see that this irreducible complexity is a very strong argument for intelligent design. It's a brilliant argument. I think B's done a great job of what he's written on this. Now, when I uh, majored in pre-med zoology at Long Beach State University, <clears throat> I became a Christian after I finished college at the age of 25, but I still was keeping some of my evolutionary theory. And so my mentor said, uh, did you know some of the top creationists in the world are going to be in your city of San Jose? No, you better go. So it's Dr. Morris and Dr. Nish, 
and uh, they had Q&A afterwards, and so I said, uh, Dr. Morris, Dr. Gish, I got some questions for you. Uh, what about the great tar pits? Doesn't that prove some sort of microevolution? No. Then I listened to the second half of their lecture. And they said things like this. <clears throat> if I took the word evolution, wrote it on a piece of cardboard, and cut it up into nine letters, and shuffled them, and gave that shuffle pile to you, and you shuffled them, what are the chances after shuffling that you get the order right? It was spelled in motion. Who said that? Very good. Nine factorial is 362,888. Pause. You got one chance in three. So this is, again, we're straw manning. We're bullshitting. We're, we're telling the audience, if I had the word evolution and I chopped it up into pieces and shuffled it, what are the odds I would get evolution again? Low, it's a low probability event. There's two problems here immediately that the people in the audience should be thinking, but probably aren't. One is that low probability events happen all the time, all the time. Okay. The way that people think about probability is, is generally not, our, our intuitive notions about probabilistic outcomes are, are reliably bad. Okay. Um, the other thing is, Evolution is not a random shuffle, okay? People who don't know anything about evolution tend to think of it as such, but by it, by definition, even if, I mean, there's, there's tons of different types of selection, but even if we're just looking at natural selection, you have a, a, a mechanism, a process guiding evolution, all right? It is not just random shuffling. When you've got organisms being selected for survival by a variety of, 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 you know, of causes, I mean, it, it is not in any way analogous to just shuffling a deck. So what, what, what Jay's doing here with, with just going low probability events, you know, have low probability, therefore you shouldn't believe that they happen. One, that's just out of the gate. That's 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 fallacious. That's that's wrong. But he's going. He's completely ignoring the the mechanisms by which evolution actually happens. The way that it used to be phrased a lot when I was a kid, people would talk about if a tornado ripped through a junkyard, what are the odds of the tornado um, assembling like a seven forty seven jumbo jet? And, you, and as Christians, we'd sit there and be like, yeah, I mean, that, like, that wouldn't happen. And of course it wouldn't happen. But there's no method of selection happening <laughs> that would lead to a jet being constructed. It's just random chaos with no selection. All right. So it's not the same shit. All right. Let's keep going. 300,000, 362, You got one chance in that to get it Isn't that amazing? And then Dr. Gish said this, suppose 10 of your single friends were invited to your house to watch a movie with you. 
and these, these 10 single friends are lined up in a single file at your front door, and you go, I think I'm going to guess the order. I'm just going to start jotting down names. Claire, Darlene, Mike, Bill. Start writing down names. What are the chances you get it right? Now, Randy's looking at the chart up here. It's one out of 3,628,800. One out of three and a half million. But you can guess first try that the 10 friends at your front door are lined up in a particular one. It has nothing to do with evolution. Now, why is it so staggering in light of evolution? I'll tell you why. The average length of a protein chain in a cell is five, four to 500 amino acids in a particular sequence. If those amino acids aren't in a particular sequence, they will not function properly. That's right. Well, four to 500 amino acids lined up in a proper sequence. Otherwise, that protein will not carry out its design function. So the question is, what about a protein such as hemoglobin that has 539 amino acids in the sequence? What are the chances of that sequence connecting by chance? First try. One out of four to the tenth. I'm sorry, one out of four times ten to the 619th power. And There's nobody, nobody would suggest that that is what happened. You have a 10 with 619 zeros behind it. And then we look at this number. How many atoms are in our known universe? Four times 10 to the 150. Do you realize how much larger the other number is? Scientists, when they see a number of anything over 10 to the 90, they just write impossible. That's only one it's protein. Not, it's not they true. Pro There's 100,000 proteins in your cells, and they have to be in the proper sequence to function accurately. I'm sorry, but chance just can't do that. Now, you moms who have children, there's a problem with your placenta. They will not allow iron to go into the baby so it can make its own blood and hemoglobin. Every mother has this problem. And so God invented a protein called transferrin. Got it. Transferrin permeates the placental wall, carrying iron to the baby to make its own blood and hemoglobin. If you didn't have that, no baby would live. See, DNA is created by God to prevent mutation. For in DNA, when a strand is not copied accurately, there's an enzyme that snips it off and discards it and recycles those and then a proper, accurately copied strip is spliced in. DNA is created to prevent mutation. A mutation is not the addition of information, it is the loss of information. It is a drag upon that creature. Another example would be chymotrypsinogen, uh, an enzyme that we use to digest meat and protein. There's 246 amino acids in this chain, uh, again, this is a number beyond our comprehension. If you think about how those amino acids are connected spontaneously by chance, beyond our comprehension. <clears throat> what is the criterion for something designed 
Well, it must have been probably out of order, a perceptible pattern, and an amount of information greater than the sum of parts. So I made this one here. <laughs> I'm an artist, so I'm thinking about the painting Mona Lisa. Now, Mona Lisa has really only about 19 parts. You got 15 colors, you got a linen canvas, you got the ground and the rest on the canvas, and you have some varnish. And yet the question is, how much more information is in that painting than those 19 parts? Countless amounts of information. For the artist, Leonardo da Vinci made hundreds of thousands of decisions to paint that. Another way to look at it would be a boomerang. It's just a single piece of wood, but there's nothing in a branch that is aerodynamic that makes it fly. I used to make boomerangs, have a contest, come in, we could catch in a row. We'd go way out of this football field, come back, and I would catch them. That means this boomerang has information far greater than the sum of its parts. Information has been put into the system. That's true of an arrowhead, a piece of pottery, a shard. Quick pause. I'm trying not to interrupt as much because I, I just want to get to the end of this, but, and we're almost, we're really close. So if you're walking through a forest and you see sticks on the ground, just ask yourself, how would you differentiate between the sticks and a boomerang? If there was a boomerang there among the sticks, okay. Or if you were looking at rocks, how you would differentiate between uh, an arrowhead, like you just said, and a rock. Or if you were walking through the forest and you saw the Mona Lisa sitting there, how would you differentiate the thing that is designed from the things that are not designed. Okay, this is this is how we recognize design. The the, the famous argument um, was the the one that Paley promoted with the, the 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 watch, like the idea of if you're walking along a beach and you look down and you see a watch, you would know that the the watch required a designer. Um, well, yeah, because you're contrasting it against things that are not designed. You're contrasting the designed thing with things that occur naturally through natural processes. Um, the the design argument falls apart. The watchmaker argument falls apart because it, it, the, the analogy would be more like if you were walking along a beach made of watches in a world made of watches next to an ocean of watches and you're made of watches and you saw a watch, you know, you would assume that the watch was designed. Well, it, it doesn't make any sense. It, when you start to really think about the argument that he's making, it's it falls apart because he's he's talking about things that are designed basically just in, in like the wrong way. <laughs> it's it's so disingenuous. I mean, you would know the designed thing, the boomerang, the arrowhead, the Mona Lisa, it, it would stand out to you among all the things that aren't designed is all I'm trying to say. Let's keep going. We think about the design of even a bird feather. Some of you have had pet cockatiels or parakeet or canary. You notice that some days it spends an hour just pulling that white feather through its beak. What it's doing is rehooking all the hooks that got unhooked through the daily wear and tear. And so God has made a series of hooks that are very tiny. And when that bird puts all those hooks back together, that feather can be unfolded and traps air and flights efficiently. That's God's design. Now, this particular ivory-billed woodpecker has a long, sticky tongue. 
And when it's pecking a hole, it's not to eat an acorn, it wants to find a worm that eats acorns. And so it reaches its tongue into that hole, tries to pull out a larva. But that sticky tongue starts here, goes over the forehead, all the way around the back of the skull, and then there's a glue gland, and it finally comes out the beak right there. This tongue makes a trip all the way around the skull, out the back like this, and that's how glue is put on the tongue. So the question is, what was that woodpecker eating while he's waiting for his tongue to travel all the way around the back of his head? And God has put certain things like this in nature that baffle the evolutionists. You can't explain it. Things such as the platypus. First time the platypus was brought back to England, it said fake, hoax, who sewed this together? What a seamstress. Wow, you sewed web feet with the bill on a, on a mammal that lays eggs. Sorry, too much. Um, we got like five phyla that doesn't work. Nope, this has not been altered. God puts things in the creation to baffle evolutionists. Pause. <laughs> this is a this is a thing that 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 has always stood out to me. Not always, but but since starting to to learn more about science as an adult after being miseducated by folks like Jay uh, for uh, my early life. Um, th there's this idea that God purposefully like structured the fossil record in a way that would mislead people that it would be like a test of your faith. You know, I've heard that that put out there, this idea that God would 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 make the world in a way where it appeared to that that evolution was true. Um, as a way of like weeding out true believers. What, what Jay is saying is that God would put animals on the planet for the purpose of just baffling evolution, you know, believers. I hate the word evolutionists. It's it's a it's a propaganda term that that is is used by creationists. Um the the more accurate word for a person who accepts the fact of evolution would be, you know, a scientist, um, an educated person, a you know, it's it's like <laughs> when people ask me like do you believe in evolution? I'm like, no, I don't. Uh, it, it, not in the sense that it sounds like you may mean. Um, I accept that evolution is true based on the evidence. So in that sense of belief being sort of like a subset of knowledge, like, yeah, like I, because I, I know evolution is true based on the evidence, um, I guess, yeah, technically I believe it, but I don't believe it in the same way someone believes that, you know, like there's a God, for example, which is a, like a faith-based thing, right? Um, Evolutionists are not, see, I, I said it. People who understand evolution, scientists, biologists are not baffled by the platypus. That's, that's bullshit, okay? Google platypus, read the freaking Wikipedia on it and you'll see <laughs> that what Chase saying is, is, is ridiculous. All right, let's keep going. We're almost done, I'm losing steam. Let's keep. <laughs> when uh, DNA was first discovered and put under an electron microscope, they were amazed it looks like the rose window of a cathedral that's cut in half. Three billion bits of information. Most of those bits of information are telling the cell how to make proteins. They're plans for proteins. Pause. Using words like well, plans, using words like purpose, using words like creation and the, what this is this is dishonest. Again, it's smuggling in the creator. Information in DNA is not the same as a plan or a blueprint, okay? A roadmap, 
All right. You, you'll hear creationists use these words to talk about our genes and it's, it's, it's disingenuous. Okay. It's smuggling in the creator without demonstrating that there was a plan or a planner. Okay. You'll hear creationists say there can't be a design without a designer. There can't be a painting without a painter. And it's like, well, yeah, that's, that is true. And then they'll say, yes, there, there can't be a, a creation without a creator. Well, you haven't demonstrated that it's a creation or that there is a creator. Okay. You're putting the cart before the horse there a little bit. Let's keep going. As a Bible-believing Christian, I believe it's blasphemous to say that chance is a more sophisticated designer than Almighty God. I believe that is unbelief. It says in Psalm 28.5, the implications are that God's truth is highly ethical. What you do with God's truth is very much connected to righteousness and morality. In fact, we could say it this way. All truth is ethical because all truth is God's truth. Oh. It says in Psalm 28.5, because they, the wicked, do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the deeds of his hands, he will tear them down and not build them up. He will tear them down and not build them up. My friends, it's not simply for you to guess. When you see what the Bible is saying about God's creation, it's not up to us to decide if God's telling the truth. God's truth creates truth because of his faith in his infallible word. I'm just about done here, then we'll take a stretch and I'll field your questions. Sorry, I'm rushing racing through here because I want to get done. Uh, you know, what difference does it make if we believe in biblical creation? We keep seeing that the fruits of evolution have really contaminated society. Ooh, okay, pause. So this is, this is the, this is the big finale. All right. So it's been said, um, I referenced Sam Harris earlier. I think it was also Sam Harris who I heard first, uh, articulate this, that th it, there aren't a bunch of different ways to argue for the existence of, of God. There's really only three, um, that you will ever encounter. Um, people will argue that, uh, a specific belief in a religious claim is true. They will argue that belief in a specific religious claim is useful, or they will attempt to attack and undermine atheism as an untenable position or a position that leads to um, negative consequences. Okay. Um, Jay has not made a case for any of the biblical claims being true. He's asserted that they're true without defining what he means by truth. Um, but he hasn't, he hasn't provided any, any substance to substantiate uh, the, the, the claims. Okay. It's just the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, well, who gives a shit? Okay. And I know that it's very taboo in our culture to respond to claims about someone's religious beliefs in this way. It is taboo to, to, for someone to be like, my faith is this. And to be like, who cares? <laughs> like that's, that, that's considered really rude and shitty, but there's a, there's sort of an inversion of our priorities here. Okay. Um, yes, we should be respectful to other people. We should, we should treat people with dignity. Um, but ideas do not deserve our, our respect. Okay. Claims don't deserve our respect. 
the degree to which we value a claim should be completely dependent on the level of evidence that's available to support the claim. All right. So when a believer comes to you and says, I super duper really from the bottom of my heart believe X, that's not a reason to believe X. Someone says, well, I super duper believe that this book is the direct revealed word of God. So what? That, that does not give you a reason to believe it, okay? What Jay has done is propped up straw man versions of evolutionary claims and knocked them down. He's misrepresented science, misrepresented scientists. Um, he's employed a series of arguments from ignorance, argument from incredulity, just fallacy after fallacy after fallacy and is now making a claim for the usefulness of a belief. He's, 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 he's said it a couple of times that, you know, that believing in evolution has bad consequences. Well, <laughs> as far as I can tell, uh, people having more and more scientific literacy um, tends to lead to breakthroughs in medicine and technology. Um, people working together more um, there's this, this trope, this, this sort of meme in conservative ideology. That's like the world is just going to shit, you know, the, the make America great again crowd. We'll talk about how, you know, everything's going downhill. Um, it, it's not true. Um, you can look at a number of different <laughs> metrics by which we evaluate the strength of a society and look at how violence has gone down. You know, poverty has gone down. We still have a huge problem with wealth inequality that we need to deal with. But uh, broadly speaking, there's been no better time to be alive and to be living on planet Earth as a human being than right now. You're more likely to have a long, peaceful life, to not die a violent death. I mean, things are things are pretty, they're, they're trending well. Um, so when people tell you this thing of like, there's bad consequences, the world's been going to hell and it's because there's less God around, it's, it's nonsense and it's not supported by any data whatsoever. It's just bullshit. All right, let's keep going. Let's wrap this up. Abortion, euthanasia, fornication, family breakup, all these things are traceable to a worldview in which we're not accountable to only God. A worldview in which we're not created to reflect God's moral majesty. Some would say, well, isn't it interesting that scientists that are unbelievers and Christians are looking at the same data? They're both looking at things like my Mosasaur fossil. And coming up with radically different conclusions. How about that? Yes, the same piece of data. We're looking at the same piece of data. Why so radically different a conclusion? Why so radically different? And this little chart here gives us some great insights into why that's the case. Heart commitment undergirds your starting point. If you start with man, you will end with man. If you start with God's infallible word, it will end with God's infallible word. Now, Ken Ham was invited on a radio station in Arizona, and this particular unbelieving radio host thought, oh man, this is so great. I've got my own flat earth happening right here. We're going to make people laugh. We're going to embarrass God. We're going to embarrass him. This is great. He didn't know that Ken Ham was one of the top creation scientists in the world. Pause! So this unbelieving talk show host. Look up Ken Ham. Look up Ken Ham. Ken Ham is not a scientist. Ken Ham has a bachelor's degree in science. He began as like a high school science teacher and 
when he saw that like students would read biology textbooks and be like, oh, that makes sense. Uh, more sense than the Bible. Ken Ham got really super duper pissed off and became a person who wanted to communicate young earth creationist ideologies to people. And he's built his whole career on lying to people about science. Ken Ham is not a scientist. Ken Ham is a salesman. He's a charlatan. He makes his money by lying to people. Okay. Let's keep going. I had a three-hour show, and at the very beginning of the show, Ken Ham said to this talk show host, would you consider yourself an objective truth seeker? And the guy said, absolutely. And Ken Ham said, are you a truth seeker that when you find data that supports truth, you acknowledge it? Absolutely. Let me ask you this. What kinds of data would you consider admissible to support Pause. the existence of the God of the Bible? Just as a, just as a, like a, to underline bold italic, what I just said about Ken Ham. If you go back and watch the Ken Ham versus Bill Nye debate, there's a moment where the moderator asks the question, what would it take to change your mind? Bill Nye, without hesitation, says evidence. And Ken Ham says, nothing would change my mind. So this whole line of questioning of Ken Ham talking to some talk show host, some footage that we don't have access to while we're hearing Jay say this to us. The idea of someone like Ken Ham, a fucking con man, presenting himself as an objective truth seeker is, oh, it drives me nuts. Because when actually, when the question is posed to him of what would change your mind, at least, I mean, at least he was honest about that. Nothing's going to change my mind. He, I mean, he's making too much money with his theme parks and his books and all of his propaganda that young earth creationists, you know, buy from him. Answers in Genesis is a multi-million dollar organization. Um, this, this is, don't get, please don't be fooled. Don't, don't, the idea of Ken Ham being a, being a truth seeker. Give me a break. Let's keep going. My friends, that was the longest 30 seconds in the history of radio time. The guy had no answer. Because it showed he starts with a heart that hates his maker. He starts with a heart that's hostile to his maker. He does not want his maker to intrude in his life and tell him what to think, what to look at. What to speak, how to treat his neighbor, how to live. He doesn't want God's intrusion, therefore he's chosen the worldview that frees up his lusts and allows him to live independently. Well, that's a drawing of uh, Darwin's ship, the HMS Bounty. Beagle, I'm sorry. I said Bounty earlier, I meant Beagle. Beagle. The unregenerate mind is someone not born again. Inevitably treats sin, death, and separation as normal. In fact, we see this that the unbeliever, the evolutionist, treats the wretchedness in the world, war, disease, and plague, and injustice as normal. Only the Christian, only the believer, understands that sin and death and decay and injustice are intruder, cruel intruder brought in by sin. I don't have time to go over this, but when you normalize sin and death, it costs a great deal. There's a junior high teacher in California. She was an evolutionist, and she wanted to teach her kids that death was normal. And so she said, kids, I want you to write your own epitaph, what you put on your grave. These kids took a week writing these things up. Then she told the truth. She says, I have terminal cancer. I'm going to be dying in about six months. But it's a beautiful thing. It's just a normal part of life. In fact, I am growing a tomato garden 
And I have given instructions that when I am cremated, my ashes will be plowed into the soil of this tomato garden in my backyard. And then we're going to wait a while. And then these tomatoes will be served to you. And you'll be eating a bite of meat. This junior high teacher said that to kids in a California school. My friends, when we trivialize death and make it normal, we lose so much. We lose our dignity, our image, what we're created to do and be. We lose all of that. <clears throat> See, Darwinism has a tree. It's called the tree of life. It's not really a tree of life. It can't be supported from the fossil record. If the only way God could make all the animals was kill billions of creatures, through death, starvation, predation, disablement, sickness, orphans, orphaned animals. If God can only make the vast array of animals we have through extinction and everything else, and then he pronounced everything good, an atom standing on a global graveyard of bones. My friends, that's not the God of my It's an appeal to consequence. If you insist that God used evolution to make all things, you're insisting that God used death to make life. That cannot be supported from Scripture. Supported from Scripture, sin is the cause of death. And before sin, there is no death. Evolutionists have a tree, and they call it the tree of life. It's actually the tree of death. Christians, Christians have a tree. It looks like a tree of death, but Christ, the Christ crucified on that tree is our tree of life. He finds us hiding from him. And he calls us to himself, forgives us, redeems us through the shed blood of the Son. All right, let's stop here. So, Jay concludes with these these anecdotes about death and normalizing death and and how it's a problem. The real reason why normalizing death and and accepting that death is just a part of existence and reality and something that we don't need to be afraid of. The reason why that's such a problem for a person in Jay's position is that it takes away the leverage that is needed to market Christianity to people who are afraid of death. Christianity, as a, as a religious system, from the very beginning, there's this idea of God creating everything and saying it's good. Not that it's perfect, which is interesting. When he, when he finishes the creation, he sits back, he's like, it's good. I don't know. If he's, a if he's a perfect, omnipotent, omniscient, everything God, why not sit back and be like, perfect. We didn't get there. Anyway, so... You've got this idea that God creates everything and it's good. And then man comes along and sins and fucks everything up and allows death to enter the world, allows evil to enter the good creation. Okay. And that this then necessitates Jesus coming and being tortured and murdered so that you and I, if we believe in this, this uh, sacrifice can then obtain eternal life. Okay. It's all about the fear of death. What happens when I die? There's all of this unknown stuff out there. There's, there's gaps in our understanding. There's things that we're afraid of. And what Christianity attempts to do is sell you a cure for the disease of sin that Christianity itself has, has diagnosed you with. All right? That's where science, that's where evolution that's where an increased understanding of our world poses such a threat to Christianity. This is why it's such an issue. Because if there's no Adam and Eve and no original sin and no Genesis narrative that actually and literally 
justifies and necessitates, you know, Jesus coming and, and going through all the stuff that, that allegedly happened with Jesus, I mean, Christianity just falls apart. If we're not fallen men, but instead we're just, you know, sort of these, these organisms that have, that have risen through a process that's completely natural, then we don't, we don't need anybody to come and atone for us. We're just, we're responsible for our world and our lives and the things that we do. You, if, if you're being honest and if you care about what's true, then you cannot just shoehorn God in where you don't understand what's going on or where you're fearful of the unknown. So with all that in mind, Christians, please stop doing what Jay did in this sermon. The, the fallacies, the straw manning your opponents, the misrepresentations and the lies about science, it, these things shouldn't be necessary if what you're preaching and what you're what you're trying to communicate is true. You should not have to lie about science to prop up Christianity if Christianity is true. <laughs> Non-believers, skeptics, if you've hung in during this entire thing, I hope that watching this that you you can empathize with with the believers who are just re repetitively just indoctrinated with these bad arguments. When you encounter believers out in the wild and they want to talk to you about evolution and, and you find out they don't know what they're talking about, recognize that the people that you're talking to sit through sermons like this and then walk out the door thinking that they are now equipped to talk to you about science. <laughs> don't be surprised when they're confused, okay? This is not something that I, I, I intend to do over and over again. This is a three-hour video. This is insane. I, <laughs> I'm i exhausted. You, you I said I was losing steam. You probably noticed my energy levels just going down as I was like more and more frustrated watching this. Um, here's the thing. I'm going to be making some videos about fallacies so that that you know you can you can recognize them when they pop up. This is for believers and non-believers alike. Okay, I want to promote skepticism. I want to promote critical thinking, and I want to promote us talking to each other as respectfully and 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 productively as we can. Um, if you come across a sermon that you would like to for me to deconstruct in this way, um, send it to me. Uh, I am wanting to engage more with pastors. I want to engage with with ministers, the people who are actually promoting these ideas to their you know flocks. Um, I find that on the atheist call-in shows, on the the, the skeptic programs that I, I tend to like, and that many of us in the skeptic community consume. Um, when's the last time you heard a pastor call in? They they don't do it. Um, so I, if you're a pastor, I want to talk to you. If you're a Christian watching this and you think your pastor said something that makes a whole lot of sense, send it to me. I, I want to look at it. All right. With all that out of the way, if you like what I'm doing here, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button. We're going to keep making more videos and I'll see you soon.